0: my research I was looking up a few of the films that david fincher did not make there's quite a few it's oh not, interesting not really scott levels but it's uh, you know it's it's on it's in it's in line uh it, you know in september of 2014 fincher revealed that he had been in a discussion with kathleen kennedy about possibly directing one of the newer star wars sequels
1: dear god
0: In weird and, you know interesting as we, as we all know he came up working at ilm and he actually worked on return of the jedi in the effects department <laughs> as like a 19 year old oh so there's um, like connections and he does have like he is of that you know he's born in 1962 um how could he not be a a star wars a, head a star wars head yeah how yeah. could he not be uh his favorite is empire strikes back and here is his description of the star wars series at that time the series as a whole the mainline movies
2: hmm.
0: star wars is the story of two slaves c3po and r2d2 who go from owner to owner witnessing their master's folly the ultimate folly of man Ooh that's, Ooh,
3: that's such a see uh,
1: now I want the venture Star Wars. Don't tempt me with such uh <laughs> treats.
0: Yeah, so, so he thinks it's like oh Hazard Balthazar or Eo, the donkey move the recent donkey movie. Did <laughs> like, he choose like a, a Robo Donkey of sorts. He does. Um and he you know he got offered it because he gets offered these things, but um again it came down to like and we've seen with a few of these unrealized projects is anytime he dabbles in a franchise mm-hmm. especially if, obviously based on his experiences with alien 3 but anytime he dabbles with a franchise his prickly nature becomes a little too much to handle for the 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 kind of gatekeepers of a franchise who at the end of the day, I want to stay the course and hand you your cheeseburgers. And yes. when a man arrives, just say that.
1: I do like that David Fincher, he is yeah, he is the type of guy who would try to take McDonald's in a very gritty and like, you know.
0: Yeah, it's like his, his overall outlook of humanity is not going to be like... And his overall opinion of the knowledge and skill set of most of the other people within the filmmaking community mm-hmm. i don't think is that high either <laughs> like he's grim he's very grim and, and yeah so it's like anytime he gets close, he does get close cuz it's like and his reasoning for getting close is kind of interesting cuz it's like oh yeah he was a star wars kid you know his most recent dabbling he came very close uh to um directing the world war z sequel recently oh i'd love that and i do i of course yeah yeah i want to see this movie too That is it's like a dave fincher is one of the few directors where i'm like
1: yeah i'd like to see your version of a weird like you know blockbuster and, film and I guess Like, there was like
0: obviously budgetary reasons but like he wanted to do it because he loves brad And that was kind of like his main reason who was like, oh, that'd be fun to do this with him and do this big thing. But I guess like budgetary reasons and apparently they also uh, China has banned zombie movies. Oh, no. So there's another reason why you're not making this movie. Hello. Yeah. Oh, I was going to go into it, but you go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, go into it. Go, go into on. it. Go into it. Hello, and welcome to the award winning podcast, The Academy Academy, show that discovers the absolute, undeniable, and scientifically proven greatest performance in your favorite actor's esteemed career. I'm Don Saunderson.
1: Uh, I'm Patrick Gremion. And by the way, I got this lovely note in the mail. Uh, it's a cool, like, um,. It's kind of hard to, I think it's like a game of some kind or something. I don't Patrick, know.
0: Patrick, Patrick's secretary, just screamed and had to go to the fainting room. <laughs> I mean, she just does that a lot.
2: <laughs> welcome,
0: she's... To, welcome to the Academy and welcome to um, You Want It Darker, the David Fincher mm-hmm. story. David Fincher's 2007 Ooh. major motion picture, Zodiac. Zodiac is currently on Paramount Plus and Showtime on Blu-ray and can be rented through all the services. There is both a um, – we'll get into some of the main reasons behind their Slight tweaks, but they're worthwhile tweaks between the theatrical cut and the director's cut mm-hmm. of this movie. We'll get into that in a little bit. But yes, uh, Zodiac, released in 2007, to- 2007 a halcyon year Ooh. for cinema. The uh, year? Released alongside such luminaries as "There Will Be Blood," "No Country for Old Men," Michael Clayton, "Into the Wild," "We Own the Night," "The Darjeeling Limited," "The Diving Bell and the Butterfly," good, good movies.
1: (laughs) That sounds like like, that have been the best cinema year of the aughts. It's
0: yeah, it's it's absolutely up there. It's um a like and even like if you think about some of the like next tier movies, you got Todd Haynes, I'm Not There, Ben Affleck's Gone Baby Gone, Uh, even American Gangster came out that year, Juno came out that year, Atonement, The Lives of Others, Um, Ratatouille for the animation heads out there. It was a big, big year, obviously dominated in kind of conversation with you know, I mean, no Country for Old Men won Best Picture, but I think when you look back on that year, No Country for Old Men, and There Will Be Blood. Initially were the ones that, like, really, really stood tall.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, well, they they felt very similar in, like, you know, style. Even though they were in different eras, different states, but they both felt, like, weird, like, just grim. Grim.
3: Gigantic.
0: Uh, gigantic. Yeah. Statements. Especially, I mean, especially, I think, There Will Be Blood is, like, such a, like, I was just even talking with a friend the other day. It was nothing to do with movies. And he said he just saw it for the first time. Wow. <laughs> he's he's a medical doctor. Like, he's a very busy guy. Yeah, <laughs> but, he's, a, he's a doctor head. He's doing that. Stuff. That's his thing. That's his thing. He's like, have you seen this? I was like, yeah, I've seen it. He goes, <laughs> I can't stop thinking about it. He's like, what? He's like, what do you think the theme was? Family, fatherhood, capitalism, America, all of the above. I'm like, yeah, all, it all of the above. He was like, he was shooting for the moon yeah. on this movie to like talk about the American century. So it's very easy for those to kind of like dominate the conversation. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the interesting things is the years have progressed. A third movie. Oh, I forgot the other movie that came out in 07. Uh, the Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which is Ooh, also kind Do- of that, Dominic. Also kind of in that. Among the people who that movie has appealed to, that movie tends to be kind of even their favorite out of that entire group.
1: Mm, It's it's that dour, there was just a dour, I mean, it's like it's post Bush. We're like,
0: yeah, it hadn't hit 08 yet. It's like toward the end, and all these movies kind of were building through the Bush era, building through the Iraq war. Yeah, five or six years. And then, like, had time to really and percolate percolate and it was just kind of this amazing moment even a movie like michael clayton which is a very traditional kind of mm-hmm. lawyer corruption movie oh what a bread oh what a bread but it does feel like it was kind of getting the heart of like oh like this is like this is a guy who i mean he's george clooney in, in 2007 yeah on paper he's like got it all made everything's great mm-hmm. but he's like no like he's completely gutted by what he's had to do. He's uh <laughs> completely and utterly in debt. Yep. And like see and his friends are literally being murdered because of it. Like because of he's... this. And he's asked to be complicit in it. Soul
1: crushing. Yeah. And yeah. you know, that can remind you of other Aspects of our time that sort of complicit and evil and having to like stomach something you weren't initially like signing up to be a part of.
0: So, like, and most of these movies end like, I mean, there'll be blood is kind of the rise and ultimately like gutting and poisonous nature Mm -hmm. of what it takes. But I think No Country for Old Men, you know, ends with the only good man left retired and just like, I don't understand. I just don't understand. <laughs> and that kind of leads to like an even more ambiguous version like of today's movie. Mm-hmm. Where it's just like David Fincher chose to tell the make the ultimate serial killer investigation movie where mm-hmm. everyone knew going in there would be no resolution.
1: Yeah. It is a <laughs> it is a uh this is a classic uh, tale of, um, hey, you're staring into the darkness. Don't let it like, will you Will you blink? Are you going to like, Because like, look, there's nothing there. It's just darkness. You can poke your finger in it.
0: Um, but... One key thing to remember, the tagline to this movie was, there is more than one way to lose your life to a serial killer. Very and good tagline. Very good tagline. That kind of sums it up. And kind of the obsession, the obsession, the desire for an answer. Which I think kind of sums up a lot of these 2007 movies. Why? And the do you accept or do you not accept the void that follows when you realize, like, there actually isn't much more to it than that?
2: Mm
3: -hmm.
0: I can't think, like, the end of Michael Clayton, he's done the good deed, he gets in that taxi cab, and Tony Gilroy brilliantly chooses just to hold on Clooney's face. As he's kind of recognizing what has gone down, Mm -hmm. and um, was it satisfying? Is he better? Is his life better?
1: This, yeah, this was like the these these films were definitely the deconstruction of like the idea, the very cinematic idea of oh, I can do this one big thing, and then I'm immediately happy. Mm-hmm. I can like solve the crime. I can beat the bad guy. I can, you know, like the
0: and, yeah and yeah, and it's like the end of this movie, which we'll get to not the f- very end, but I think the kind of the uh, the big end of this movie is the paint shop scene, mm. which we'll talk about in a bit where it's a great it is a great, Smith yeah. goes to like see how he feels basically yep. he is not it, going it, he's it, not going to get like a true resolution out of it. Mm-hmm. but he just kind of wants to see how he feels when he's confronted with what he thinks. Per-
1: perhaps, perhaps uh, this, uh, we've been talking about staring into the darkness, perhaps that's, uh, what yeah. that scene uh, typifies, perhaps like, yeah, like staring into the void, staring into the darkness, staring into uh, uh, too- there was something you've been oh, reckoning with for years.
0: The times, but also the fact a lot of these filmmakers, these are the kind of late baby boomer to mm-hmm. early Gen X filmmakers who arrived on the indie scene in the 80s and 90s. By 2007, they are all getting their shot at the plate mm-hmm. to make their grand statement. But we also know what are their biggest influences filmmakers. The movies from 25, 30 years prior of the 70s that mm-hmm. were kind of the doing the same kind of deal in the Nixon, Watergate, yep. Vietnam era and many of them even have to go back in time like today's movie to even cover something from that time period to kind of shine a light on perhaps some stuff of this time period and i think the fascinating thing about this movie is that you become so invested in it that when it's over you kind of feel like the characters Mm. you're like was i lost in it myself with all of these clues all of this like am i get are we gonna figure it out <laughs> like and then when <laughs> you don't you're like oh and then when the you know cue the hurdy-gurdy man which is the infinite soundtrack to this feeling
2: evil <laughs> like, an evil
1: the like, easily the most like demonic like you, you hear it and it's like this song could only be designed to ironically murder someone to
0: yeah and it's it was a, it was it's yeah. almost as if it was sitting waiting for david fincher
1: yeah
2: for
0: 40 years or however long it was out
2: <laughs> he it? decided
0: like here it is this is the song that's going to like sum up the tone and vibe of this entire movie which might be i don't even know if he knew it at the time but it might be the mag- my magnum opus uh yeah we'll get into if we feel that way as we go so yeah. as we mentioned zodiac is available in all these locations we're going to be talking about the entire thing as this is a true story um this is all out there yeah very, yeah, very very much so out there
1: they're uh, still trying to like they have like the case breakers yeah, and all those we'll guys talk, working we'll, on it yeah. yes
0: we will talk a little bit about the aftermath even from this movie <laughs> toward the end of this episode because we could talk about our some of our favorite conspiracy theories kind of how this still kind of haunts and that kind of thing um but first up Patrick, um, what is your background with this movie?
1: Oh, man. Uh, I think I watched it in... I never watched it in theaters, but I watched it in high school, uh, and then I watched it on maybe, like, Netflix like three or four years ago or two or three years... During the pandemic, I think, Mm -hmm. actually. Uh, It's a very
0: good... um, This is a very, like, good pandemic... This was a good pandemic movie.
1: Oh, for (laughs) sure, yeah. It's a good good pandemic. It's a fun... Yeah, because it's long... (laughs)
0: Yeah, I was explaining because Jen saw it for the first time with me the other night, and she kept saying how she falls asleep on it. I go, oh, that's because this is a night movie. And her dad was like, what does that mean? I'm like, oh, this is a movie you want to put on at like 9 p.m. or midnight yeah. even. Like, get lost if you really want to get lost in this movie... Watch it on a little, like little half sleep. <laughs> like,
1: yeah, if you you wanna, if you wanna like mirror uh, the Jake Gyllenhaal's descent into yeah. obsession and madness. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, do this at eleven. Do this at midnight.
0: Start it late. It's three hours long, but it's worth it. Yep, have a pot
1: of coffee because you want to yeah. have those jitters that he has. Like, yeah, you
0: kind of want to feel like Charlie Day in the Pepe Sylvia. Scene, and it's it's always (laughs) sunny in Philadelphia. You gotta get into Peppy Sylvia mode. Smoke a cigarette. You gotta have your coffee. There is no Carol. (laughs) (laughs) This place is a goddamn ghost town. (laughs) (laughs) We watched that after. um, Oh, good golly! um, We watched. Jen and I watched The Secret of My Success with Michael J. Mm. Fox the other night. And oh, that's yeah. like, you know, he comes up from the mailroom to the boardroom and it's got the bow, 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 chicken, like soundtrack and that kind of thing. And I was like, have you seen that Sunny in Philadelphia episode where they try to do this and it goes horribly wrong? So we watched that directly after the, Pe- the Pepe Sylvia
1: episode. Uh, yeah. It's so fun that, like, yeah, in the way that David Fincher, and although in his era, they were like 70s movies, guys. Those guys well, were yeah, very uh, the 80.
0: sunny the sunny guys who are like within a few years of me. It's like, yeah. Yeah, of course, we remember Secret of My Success like biblically. <laughs>
1: like, yeah, yeah, of course <laughs> we're gonna do a, an episode that's just a, a, a nearly a full on parody of Ski School. <laughs> I know.
0: Yeah, only like yeah, like those of us who have seen Hot Dog the movie know exactly <laughs> what they're talking about.
1: <laughs> Crazy, I love it. Uh,
0: uh, yeah, I think like and this is a movie too, like yeah it's like it's an interesting thing so i saw it uh at the pacific place cinema in seattle in an advanced mm. screening before it came out wow um, interesting and we walked out and i think like a lot of people i think i think you're kind of open for seven <laughs> in a way yeah it's not it's not seven at all mm. so i was like a little like hmm, it was good but i think that year it was like oh there'll be blood. And, no country like <laughs> overwhelmed by all these movies. but then I got a copy of it on DVD, the original version and then I ended up getting the director's cut and then I just kept watching it Ooh. and you're know, like oh my god the, the rhythm of this movie and like the vibes of this movie and all of it. it's like it's so grim but it's so intoxicating and then you kind of realize like oh the violence in this movie is over after mm. the first hour yeah and it's like oh that's interesting like you've lulled into thinking this is a very violent movie and it's like because those two first two killings are so graphic and then you're like oh it's not that at all this is a totally different thing
1: it's almost like a historical epic
0: yeah and then you like yeah. it, like, like, it yeah, has like absolutely. the tone of like a
1: david lean film at times almost where it's like it just and, builds over time and like there's that it's very gradual the
0: more you watch it the more you're like Oh, I, I every time I see it, and Graysmith starts putting it together in that final 45 minutes, and he starts bringing the stuff to Toski, and he starts bringing the stuff to Narlo, and he starts bringing oh. the stuff to um, what's it, Elias Cotez's character, uh, Molnax. Oh, my um, God. And he's bringing them all that stuff, and, they, oh, and the way their eyes light up, they're like, maybe he's going to do it. And you kind of like, I've seen this movie a dozen times. And I'm like, maybe he's going to do it.
1: There's like yeah, and, <laughs> and I love too the different levels of like, because some I feel like Molnix, he's like kind of like is a little more like ah, I'll let you do this this one time but be quick or whatever. But then like Donald Loge's cop, he is so like it feels like there's different levels of like oh I think this guy has a chance. I don't know. It's very fascinating. And even,
0: even Toski is so by the book. He's so cool and he's like America's top cop. Yeah. By the time they go to those diner scenes, he's kind of like
1: maybe. Uh- like
3: years, this, like
1: this, maybe this weird guy yeah it does like oh my god it does feel like the um this movie is like letting you see the birth of true
0: crime mhm yeah it is because grace smith is kind of the original version of the citizen investigator
1: yeah the uh the 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 curious outsider
0: which is such a great character in movies yeah Well, can't so <gasps> It is interesting because this is um key theme to this movie is about obsession, right? Yes. Like, I think that that's pretty clear. And I think who better than David Fincher, Mr. Meticulous, Mr. Control Freak, Mr. Yeah, Down to the Minute Detail Obsessed to do this movie. But I guess the question is, like, so going back to David Fincher before we get into the movie. 2007. This movie comes out. This is actually one of the longer windows of time that he ever had in his career between pictures up until recently. Up at, at this point, though, he'd been in a every two year, even every two to three year window. Panic Room comes out in 2002. Zodiac doesn't come out till 2007. Wow. that is like a five. That's that is kind of yeah, crazy. And I remember even feeling this. That was another thing going into that screening of Zodiac that I went to was. We felt like we hadn't seen him for a while. And we also felt like Panic Room, as good as it is, and in retrospect, it's so like such a good time. It's so satisfying. It felt a little slight though. Yeah. Compared to the a, guy who did Seven, the guy who did a, Fight Club. You know? You want a big Finch. You want a big you want a big
1: movie. Like where the Fincher. Here's my question. So you were a Fincher fanatic of that era. Were mm-hmm. you like? Did you have venture fever for this? Did you see the trailer for this, and did it like incite something I, within you? I was
0: really excited to see it, but I was skeptical. Oh, there was a part of me that felt like we had overrated Fight Club. Fight Club <laughs> had been cool until everybody saw it. Um, that uh, yeah, it was, that there was kind of like, well, eh, substance. Give me Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, you know that was it. Like Paul a Thomas Coen Anderson brother. at this point was. I think I didn't like the Coen brothers cause I felt they played God. I yeah. think I was kind of like angry with them too, but it's so strange cause my taste now I actually kind of do like playing God. <laughs> like I kind of <laughs> like that a little, like the like verite realism doesn't do as much for me as the kind of like very slick existentialism of the Coens and Finch. Yeah. Like, well
1: like the, in the pure like aesthetic, uh, like, it's not just like a Paul Greengrass. Uh, although I love, there's totally I space for that.
0: Yeah, I think so too. But it's, it is interesting how you're kind of, t- uh, even around 2007, guess who I was skeptical of and you don't even want to know? I don't know. Mr. Christopher Nolan. Mr.
1: Nolan, who's
0: Mr. Who, Prestige? Who everyone knows. He's, <laughs> he's kind of my dude. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, like, <laughs> uh, it was just like, and I it, it guess, to quote the recent reunited recently, Risen Like the Phoenix Blink 182, I guess mm. this is growing up. You, you get, get a little hardened, perhaps, as you like, and the like slicker, icier worlds, mm. you know, even going to the European style with like how much I'm a fan of like Ruben Osland or Michael Mikael Henneke, mm. like, or Petzled. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, or Christian Petzold, or you know, Hong Sang-soo to an extent. Even though I think Hong has a lighter touch than yeah. all of them, I think Hong's movies are funnier mm-hmm. than all of those guys. Movies.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah, you don't My, go to an Nolan movie for the like, spoofs, and goofs.
0: Yeah, <laughs> combined, they're all funnier. Uh, like I think, um, yeah, it's just kind of interesting how that goes. But I was like, certainly, like, like on, like I made a point to make it to that advanced screening. I was going to see it opening weekend. Mm -hmm. No matter what. I think that the skepticism lied in the fact that it had been a while. His previous Mm -hmm. movie, Panic Room, which at the time I was like, that wasn't enough. felt too slight. That was how I felt in the moment. And then I think that there was a weariness about another serial killer movie. Mm. And I think that it's weird how he gets kind of, uh, the, even in then he was pigeonholed into you know, he makes movies about killers well, in looking at his filmography, he'd actually only made one at, the, at this point <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, Fight Club is a very odd kind of phantasmagoric mm-hmm. nightmare picture but mm-hmm. it's not necessarily a movie about serial killers the game is not even close it's a thriller but it's like more on the kind of hitchcockian mechanics of things. Does anyone actually even die in the game? No. Nah, no. Yeah. It's like, it's,
1: it, it, it it's truly like you, it's a it, it's a titular game. It's just yeah. a yeah.
0: Panic Room is a home invasion thriller, but it's different too. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's like oh, he doesn't just constantly make murder mysteries. In mm-hmm. fact, he's only hit made only one. But because Seven is so the amazing thing about seven seven is like a once-in-a-lifetime thing where once it's in your head once you've mm-hmm. seen it there are, it's just never leaving yeah like, well and it's and it's, he, and is, it's what, he has bought he has bought property in your headspace
3: well, <laughs> you know?
1: And it's like it's it's one of the rare movies too where it is just so totemic it's so uh it's, it's so like so influential
0: of the genre we're still that. People are still dealing. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, we're, I mean, s- we're, we're
1: talking about that movie
0: Reptile that came out. Yeah, three weeks ago with oh. said It is that
1: same deal, or even that one with like Jared Leto, like a year oh. ago or two. The the Little one that's just, yeah, with exactly with Denzel Washington. Yeah, so they're absolutely. still doing it. They can't get out they can't get away. he like he, he it, created it, a shot it's like Quentin Tarantino almost in yeah. terms of maybe even more so because it's not like people are doing you know um the day I died in Denver or whatever like they're not doing no, like those your... have
0: slowed that that genre like people have kind of like just like this is Tarrant Quentin's thing yeah, like but seven stronger than seven. ever because people think like here's the reason one. it doesn't feel artistically distinct. At first glance, in the way that Wes Anderson or Quentin Tarantino are, yeah. But you got to be really, really fucking good. You got to really, really strike gold. You got to do it in a very, very specific way to accomplish something as memorable as Seven, and as so like distinct as Seven, and it becomes its own like his slickness, his coolness, his grim, the grim nature. But he pushed. He got andrew kevin walker in the right time in his life oh yeah but that screenplay that's very specific it has the pull of like oh seven deadly sins that's an interesting gimmick
1: yeah you need like he you need but, that
0: specific level of misanthropy the fincher says he's like when you're reading the script you're like okay i get it i like it it's cool but then there's 40 pages to go and John Doe shows up with blood on his hands, give turning himself in. And he's like, that's where it got me when I read the script. Cause he's like, oh, this is gonna be different. Cause I don't now I now do not know what's going to happen next. Um, you know? <laughs> and well, that's what these other movies I think don't have this like it's this potent. It's also the potency of like young Brad Pitt, perfect Morgan Freeman. Yeah. The way that they sold the killer not revealing who what actor plays him until like, even in like any of the press materials, right? All of these elements and is aware of that. That's what makes Fincher like that, which makes me love him as a filmmaker yeah. and why he's perfect for the material we're talking about today is the meticulous nature of saying each piece actors, script, music, sound design, effects, location, marketing, all of these pieces have to be, you cannot say, Oh, we're gonna do a seven like thing.
2: Hmm.
0: Well, like with Reptile, they wrote an interesting character and had one of the most interesting actors alive playing the lead character. So the things that are a little bit like less than in
2: mm-hmm. that
0: movie, it still makes it watchable. Because yeah. you're like, Oh, I want to see Benicio del Toro solve a murder mystery. That's cool. That's like, yeah. same with little things. You're like, I want to see Denzel Washington to solve this grim murder mystery, but they're what the ins and outs, the whys, the distinct moments aren't going to stick with you as much. Like every single time I think of like the best action sequence and chase sequence of the last mm-hmm. thirty years, it's very difficult not to go with them arriving at John Doe's apartment and that run through the rain and Brad Pitt crossing the taxi cabs like yeah on top of a, like those images you're just like I remember every single one of the and the fear because Somerset's aware of Mills personal life mm-hmm. like Gwyneth Paltrow has told him she's pregnant
2: yeah the
0: fear that it's going to get killed and it, it, it only like, like
1: makes it's an exp and it, it, it's an expedition it, it makes more, though, it more
0: yeah throughout the entire thing too and it's just all of the pieces and thinking that's what you have to think about as a filmmaker which fincher does better than almost anyone every well, single piece matters in building this kind of one you know this one thing and mm-hmm. if you let it slide any element It just, you can get away with it. You could probably make a watchable movie. Oh, totally. Probably a good movie, Mm -hmm. even. To cross that, cross into Valhalla, to ride through the gates (laughs) of cinematic Valhalla, (laughs) you need every detail. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes 7 so fucking special, is it does hit on every single detail.
1: So when you brought up seven, it's so fascinating, like Zodiac. And this is probably something you've already thought of and are going to say later, Later, but I, I it's like an inverse seven. Yeah.
0: And it's, it's taking all the elements that like, cause it's an A picture yeah. doing and Seven's like the great, one of the greatest B pictures mm-hmm. ever made. Except they were Terminator, like in terms yeah. of B pictures. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so well done. It's so mm-hmm. well crafted and it's, it ultimately becomes on a higher level, almost in spite of its material. Mm-hmm. Whereas Zodiac is, you know, Zodiac, um, a little different, but I mean, we can kind of get through, I had a section, we'll talk about influences, but one influence I want to talk about in particular right now is all the president's men. Cause that's what this movie is. Wow. It's not seven. Mm-hmm. It's about going to lie. It's a movie about going to the library.
2: Yeah. research <laughs> you know? it's research the, the movie
0: yeah and kind of like the importance of like if you really want to get it right these are the, the many steps one needs to take uh, of course in all the president's men you know all the president's men is looked at as this heroic thing because you know Woodward and Bernstein perhaps flick the domino mm-hmm. to bring down a corrupt president hey democracy in the media nice i don't feel david fincher feels no 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 the the world is a bit darker (laughs) place for mr david fincher than it is for the you know the um the liberal optimist robert redford
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) yeah i feel like david fincher like his films are sometimes in His films can be the cinematic equivalent to um, someone trying to make one of those epic domino art piece moments, and then like 40 dominoes into a 10,000 domino piece. Something goes wrong in a good way.
0: He just doesn't believe. So um, resolution and finality is something he does not abide by. Mm. He does not think it's possible. Yeah. And I think it's, it might be if you caught him on an honest day on a couple of glass wine, because we are all going to die,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which we'll talk about in the next episode. And his, well, next, I his, think his he that followed this film is the inevitability of, you know, what is the point of living? Mm-hmm. I, I think he yeah. also love loves, like, bursting the bubble, too. Oh, yeah, I think yeah he loves being a stinker in that regard. Hey, he is a thing, bubble. This thing you thought.
2: Mm hmm.
0: Yeah, he likes to poke and prod. He likes to yes. provoke. And I think like so you're going to do a movie with, and seven, one thing about seven is like for as drastic and as gut-wrenching
3: mm-hmm.
0: as its conclusion is. It does have a conclusion. <laughs> like it has a yeah. real and he here he's going to present here's some terrible things without <laughs> a conclusion. Yeah. This, <laughs> this is actually and this is true we're gonna do every bit of investigating ourselves to prove this is true this is real mm-hmm. sorry <laughs> basically you know sorry <laughs> you're gonna be staring off into the void at a paint shop so but going into this he had like all this window and so what he, what was he doing mm-hmm. before this time period so what he was doing is a lot he had a lot of interesting projects presented to him in and around this time period um as recently came out in the press he was originally going to work on the blade movie the original blade movie uh but of course he kind of came in and david s goyer said it was like a whirling dervish of ideas and thoughts he had this entire room set up with all sorts of like images and like things he wanted to do but with him and again i don't this is the b- b- the battle.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't actually think studios want to work that hard to make their money. And what has been proven over time is that they don't have to. <laughs>
3: like, <laughs>
0: and it's just you're open, You know, you're opening a can of worms with this guy. That it's going to be. And the one thing I really am impressed with him is like his his ethic, mm-hmm. his work ethic. Yeah, he does not abide by fucking cutting corners. And Mm -mm. that's a beautiful thing. He he respects his craft. He He is not sloppy. He is not sloppy. And when you're in this, when people are getting into this business for very, as hell, go back to our Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer series to see the varying ways one can, and reasons why one would want to get into this business. Mm Mm-hmm. There are much different things. So he bounces around between projects and he doesn't seem to be too precious about them because of it. Uh, so Blade. Uh, briefly in April 2000, he was for a few months attached to direct Catch Me If You Can.
3: Whoa!
0: the Spielberg version. Um, he acquired the rights to a book, a novel that took place in the bodybuilding world. Hello Pain Again, called Chemical Pink. Uh, never <laughs> happened. He there is a project in August of 2000 that he entered discussions are called They Fought Alone, which is a World War II movie uh, about a soldier serving in the Philippines at that time um, that he wanted Brad Pitt to play this soldier. Mm -hmm. This one has come up often. He is. he, He brought it up again in January of 2009. This one. I think this is one that still kind of is. In the ether. To some extent. Um, in November of 2000. He was set to direct an adaptation. Of Anthony Bourdain's book. Kitchen Confidential. Called Seared. With of course Brad Pitt. Playing the Bourdain character.
1: Wow. That, what a missed
3: opportunity. And
0: it was supposed to follow up. Panic Room. Of course it became the. the Lost to time. TV show, Kitchen Confidential, with Bradley Cooper, a pr- very pre-superstar Bradley Cooper playing the version of Bourdain. I have seen him. I've seen every episode of the show. <laughs> is, it, is it good? I've never... Heard... Uh, no. Aww, uh, no. <laughs> it, it got cancelled after four episodes. It lasted Ugh. one season in 2005 on the Fox Network. Um, he also was... This is a little ahead of that. The idea of this, like he was going to do a sh- movie called Chef. Predating the Sean De John Favre one. He was talking about doing this in December of two thousand eight, another like high intensity chef movie, this time with Keanu Reeves playing the chef. Man,
1: uh, man. This of course Ugh, eventually I
0: want this. found its way to be released as the film Burnt. With Bradley Cooper playing no. the show.
1: <laughs> no, I feel like uh, Charlton Heston looking well, at the yeah, Statue of Hollywood.
0: Liberty. Welcome to Hollywood. Um, <laughs> around February 2000, he wanted to direct the uh, a graphic novel by Charles Burns called Black Hole. This oh, one was a big on. This one was man. a real big one for him. Uh, but it got <sighs> dropped to do *Girl with the Dragon Tattoo* later on. That's an incredible comic book. That would
1: have been so wild. Because, like, have you ever read it? It's black and white. It's very, um, it's about, um, basically, it's like, uh, I think it's like 70s, like, Seattle area or Washington. And um, there's like a sexually transmitted disease going around, but it gives you like a mutation. Like, and then it's like, you know, like, it gives you like, it'll give you like like, a weird face or like a tail or something. There
0: was hopes that this would be more in the Fincher Fight Club zone. Mm-hmm. kind of this kind of a wilder yeah but it's it's
1: but it's not like it's such a finchery it's such a modern finchery and mm-hmm. there's like zo- it's very zodiac-y in the sense of like there is like um intrigues happening in the background that you're not quite sure of and there's like not a lot of resolution
0: it's very grim it ends on such a dour note like a lot of kids die oh, yeah. and so like it would I have think, been the yeah, perfect venture it would have been very hard but it sounds like and a lot I remember at the time you know, if we were talking about being a Fincher follower. Yeah. I was following these projects, like Ooh. in the hopes that and this was the one that online and a lot of people were like kind of circling like, oh, I think this is one he'd really like. Yeah, do a good job, on, like be a pretty special one. Mm-hmm. Um He was also attached to the spec script by Scott Frank, The Lookout, which ended Ooh. up coming out directed by Scott Frank starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt, a very sharp, um, you know, kind of thriller. I want, I want to see that movie it's, for. A, he, it's it's very good.
1: Yeah, um, it it came out like there was like that era where Gordon Levitt was doing a lot of like really interesting yeah. indie stuff. Yeah, like Alpha yeah, Dog and, and that. Yeah.
0: And he um, and mm. I guess David Fincher even did to help work on developing this script, and this got a little further along. Another really interesting one that he was very involved with that he does even have an executive producer credit on is Lords of Dogtown. He was mm-hmm. supposed oh. to direct that. He, of course uh, replaced Fred Durst as the director of mm-hmm. that, and he ended up being uh, exiting over budget and philosophical differences. Katherine Hardwick eventually directed that movie.
1: interesting. But another,
0: you know, 70s true story, but a yeah, a skateboard picture like so that would have been interesting um, but now we're getting to the, even the perhaps the most interesting, closest call. first step is Mission Impossible Three. Which he oh. was supposed to be involved with, but and he has gone on to say, like entering on a he had you know, for lack of a better term, the heebie jeebies, entering a franchise on the third movie. That is oh. well
1: established. Fight was, your fear.
0: Yeah, he was <laughs> he wanted to. There was an attraction to it. Um he wanted to make the movie really violent. Probably in his vein. Um, he ended up exiting though and said, I think the problem with third movies is people who are financing them are experts on how they should be made and what they, what they should be at that point. When you own a franchise like that, you want to get rid of any extraneous options. I'm not the kind of person who says, let's see the last two. I see what you're going for. You'll never hear me say whatever is easiest for you. Hmm. And I think this was that time because we, you know, with the Mission Possible series was so interesting. They started with the Palma, moving to John Wu. But Tom had come off of jumping on the couch on the War of the Worlds press tour.
3: Yeah.
0: He, he needed, without for lack of a better term, a gimme. Mm-hmm. He needed a hit. Yeah, he and needed a banger. For David Fitcher to come in with something so esque, and he mm-hmm. does fit the bill of the previous directors of kind of like yeah. let's bring in a interesting person to put their yeah. spin on it
1: we just but, had john woo he put his yeah
0: spin. he and he did he certainly <laughs> did for those of us who've watched mission impossible 2 this year and kind of, i think both patrick and i watched it this year both patrick, yeah I it's a spin without question
1: yeah. <laughs> hey great hair best tom yeah.
0: cruise hair Oh, his hair is phenomenal. And it's a long hair cruise, feathery, feathery. The, lo- the, the long hair ones in the series are always the wild cards. Trust me on this. <laughs> <But> like... <laughs> I think there's only one. It's that one. <laughs> well, he's got longish hair in Ghost Protocol. Oh, it, crew cut, it's really crew cut versus anything that's not crew cut. Interesting. That's fair. End, that's fair. And I think the you know, and I think the, but I think the best ones in the movie at the end of the day are the short of the hair. So I think Mission Impossible and Fallout are the two best. The original yeah. and Fallout are the two best in the series. I yeah. really like Rogue Nation though too, which is kind of a medium length hairstyle from Cruise. But...
1: I mean, yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough call. I do like that. Uh, uh... I will
0: say I like every single one of them. Oh, yeah, they're all they're all great. I did, I, they're
1: all beggars. And I, well, and I do think um, you know the Brad Bird, Tom, Cre- uh, Mission Impossible it ghost, introduces Ghost Protocol. Ghost Protocol it introduces everyone's favorite character, uh,
0: William Brand. Jeremy Renner, yes, bring back hashtag being bring back Brand. He brought the way he is sidelined the Rogue Nation is hilarious. It it is bro- like. Is so like you're gonna replace Tom Cruise. Now you're gonna be Alec Baldwin's second in command in the second one, the second time you appear.
3: <laughs> Essentially,
0: yeah. Alec Cruz is gonna get to do all the cool stuff, and all the remainder cool stuff isn't even gonna go to you, Jeremy. It goes to Rebecca Ferguson. It goes to Rebecca Ferguson, <laughs> and then like
1: any other drip of cool, it goes to Simon Fucking Peg.
0: You don't get It cool. <laughs> goes Jeremy, to Benji. You're gonna, you're gonna be back, but you don't get to do. Any cool stuff? You were promised to take over this series and get to mm-hmm. do all the cool stuff. By the time you're in the second one, you get no cool stuff. Yeah, they're a little. But, yeah, but that time a little movie called Board Legacy. Yeah, you're so in the <laughs> he was out. Joe Carnahan was briefly in, and then it uh, as it inevitably went to J.J. Abrams. Yeah, here's where it gets really interesting, though. In his project, he first up is a project in 2006 based on another comic book called Torso about Elliot Ness and his investigation of Cleveland Torso Murders. This one came very close. Paramount Pictures, the rumored cast even of Matt Damon, Rachel McAdams, Casey Affleck, and Gary Oldman just didn't happen. Yeah, the old man. The most important of these movies is, of course, his thwarted adaptation of James Elroy's The Black Dahlia, which he worked on extensively. His plan was to make a massive... Five part miniseries that would star Tom Cruise. That was wow. his goal. Um, they in 2013, a graphic novel adaptation of his pitch was released, where he was credited with the, the adapt- adaptation of the story. I've never read it, the graphic novel. I haven't either. I, I I want to. Yeah. But for those of you, who, and then of course the movie was released in 2006, directed by Brian De Palma. Um, mm, yeah. The book, though, to give people background on the book, um, if Zodiac is the most famous unsolved murder in mm-hmm. California, 1B would be the Black Dahlia murder, um, in which a young would-be actress in um, 1947 is found brutally murdered, and there was an investigation, and in real life... It went unsolved. Now, um, in his own personal life, James Elroy, who was born in the late 40s himself, his mother was also murdered in an unsolved Oh, my God. Murder, That's a scary. very similar way to the Black Dahlia, which led him down a road of discovering the Black Dahlia and becoming obsessed with it. And in a sense, thinking if he solved Black Dahlia, he could solve his own mother's disappearance
1: a little bit of Graysmith in there too a little a little bit he, he ended that.
0: up actually a few years ago reopening his mother's own case and hiring an ex-cop and he and the cop tried to solve it themselves very heavy wow it's great uh, James Elroy also appears on the commentary track on the Zodiac DVD and uh. declared it the greatest crime movie of recent years that, that should be nice so in Elroy's book though this is a spoiler. Sorry. Mm. He goes off script in a sense in the same way Tarantino does with his films mm-hmm. and solves it. Ooh. And that's kind of the twist on the Black Dahlia is that he figures out, or doesn't figure out, but he kind of gives a fictional conclusion. Oh man, that's a like a vi- story.
1: That's nice. That's like a very,
0: I like, good and for I think him. That, that yeah. also helps him deal with yeah, personal life, but one cannot help but think this theory, these this uns this the unsolvable crime, the obsession with the unsolvable crime, was on David Fincher's mind
2: mm-hmm.
0: during this time period. If he's working on the Black Dahlia into Zodiac that closely, right. that this is a theme that very much is on his mind. So now it should be noted that. David Fincher was born, as we've talked about, he was born in Denver, Colorado, mm-hmm. in 1962. But his father, Jack Fincher, uh, was worked for was a bureau chief and reporter at Life Magazine, and which caused the family to move around a lot, based on mm-hmm. where he was low where he had to work. Um, and a big portion when he was around two years old, the family moved to a San Francisco suburb. So when he was two years old, it's 1964. Wow. Our film begins in the year, uh, the first in 1969. Mm-hmm. So David Fincher was seven years old. David Fincher was seven years old, living on the outskirts and suburbs of San Francisco, where the majority of this story takes place. At one point, they... The Zodiac threatens in a, one of their letters to shoot a school bus and kill kids on board that school bus. In theory, mm-hmm. David Fincher could have been one of those threatened kids.
1: He was in a, like a it's like a state of fear that you're constantly just, uh, you're it's a morass you cannot escape
0: from. Mm-hmm. Um. Here's a quote. I remember coming home and saying the highway patrol had been following our school buses for a couple weeks now. And my dad, who worked from home and who was very dry, not one to soft pedal things, turned slowly in his chair and said, oh, yeah, there's a serial killer who has killed four or five people who calls himself Zodiac, who's threatened to take a high-powered rifle and shoot out the tires of a school bus, and then shoot the children as they come off the bus. Cool. He was talk- He was told that when he was like. Yeah, six, seven yeah. years old. <laughs>
3: I
1: mean, I guess, like, what do you do in that situation? I mean, yeah, the idea of
0: his yeah. upbringing and how he is who he is.
1: Yeah, he you is like a big like that big, uh, big uh, Santa Claus isn't real energy. Absolutely. Yeah, good like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. That which is great. Like it's a good energy. It's not like
0: it's you know fun to keep it alive a little bit, but like yeah. So as we mentioned, the movie opens on July fourth, nineteen sixty nine. Um a couple is driving through the Vallejo suburbs, mm-hmm. checking out the very American graffiti, checking out the burger stands
3: yeah! on a date.
0: But something seems a little strange about this couple. Mm-hmm. The guy is and this is a true. The guy's wearing like eight layers in July. I don't know if you caught that. Yeah. The couple is Darlene Farron and Mike Mijot. They drive around. They get a little spooked by something. She kind of reveals she's married
2: oh yeah and
0: they end up on lover's lane Mm -hmm. and a car pulls up behind them and you know basically what we see is a man get out of the car pull a gun and shoot both of them and very finisher shoots this in incredibly clinical Mm -hmm. straightforward fashion it's like not it's very matter of fact It's very
1: like, yeah. He he. Um, a lot of his cinema just. I think I've said this before in previous episodes. It feels like he's just. He's like. It's like furniture. It's like great. Like really well made. It's like he goes for the for the craftsman's eye.
0: Yes, and um, you know, if you watch the special features on the Blu-ray, there Mm -hmm. was previs done on this entire sequence, so they knew every Mm -hmm. shot, they knew every mo, they knew every bit that they were going to do, and he did that with the main. In particular, he you know he didn't want to go back to his panic room pre visualization of everything, mm-hmm. but he still is a firm believer for major set piece type sequences that it's important. And I understand right. that you want to get it yeah. right. Yeah. And they're expensive and they're time consuming and that kind of thing. Also, one thing though, no, this is the first use of CG blood. Oh, interesting. In any of his films, and he's gone and do it ever since because you can't do fifty takes and do blood. Because you can't reset it and clean it up over and over again. Yeah. It's a waste of time. Yeah. Well, and I
1: will say, I will say too that, like, he's like one of the few people where he can get away with it.
0: Indeed. Yeah. So, sets it up, and then we see the young man, Michaud, has survived. The young woman has died. He's crawled out of the car. He's hurt. The cops come across it. There's a note on the door, and we get the voiceover of. Possibly the Zodiac calling nine one one in a very haunting. I've just done this. They're here. Yeah. Goodbye. Cut to yeah. black, and you're like, oh, geez. And then "Hurdy Gurdy Man" by Donovan comes in. We'll talk a little bit about the music in just a moment here. But deeply um, he insane. To get to the basics here, mm-hmm. so this movie is based on two books. Oh. Zodiac and Zodiac Unmasked both by Robert Graysmith We will talk about who Robert Graysmith is Ooh. very very shortly here. They were big as kind of even presented in the movie kind of airport hits true yeah. crime, like the initial like Patrick alluded to this is the this is kind of this along with Vincent Bugolsi's um helter skelter book are kind of like the peak beginnings of the of fascination with true crime.
1: Yeah, this is proto true crime. Proto true is... crime.
0: Yeah. So, the first person Gary Smith sold the rights to the book to, to make into a movie was, of course, a character we've, an interesting guy who came mm-hmm. up, who's come up multiple times on the show. I like, I like, and interesting of course, guys. Shane Salerno, who Ooh, we he's... just
3: discussed a Zelig like
0: <laughs> a zelig like figure within the Academy Academy who I don't think we've ever actually covered specifically but has shown up as a peripheral figure. Yes yeah. so, we talked about him last week on or no well in the world of recording last mm. week or whatever, when he did the Alien mm-hmm. Resurrection or yeah. whatever else that was. Time, time is a mystery at this point. we got the holidays coming up. We're banking some stuff here, folks. So time yeah. is an illusion. Time is a flat circle, to quote Rust Cole. Taking it to the bank. Uh, so Shane Salerno develops a really close relationship with Robert Graysmith. They're mm-hmm. taking it around to get it produced. They're at Touchstone Pictures. Um, all sorts of interesting ideas. Because one of the more difficult things here is it's such a fascinating spooky story but the conclusion is not a hollywood ending it does not work within the confines of what one expects from a thriller so what do you do how do you end this thing how do you Mm. tell this story especially also because the killings stop yeah there's also like you know we don't know. There's so much to the unknown with this story. Simulta- yeah, you run out of string. Yeah. simultaneously uh, around simultaneous to that. Uh James Vanderbilt is a young man in high school. Now, James uh-huh. Vanderbilt is a movie movie uh obsessive. Based on his last name, you know he's also a scion of a- <laughs> yeah, the Vanderbilt <vegetable> family. <laughs>
1: It is like yeah, it is like <laughs> looking at a script and being like, "Oh, it turns out a uh, uh, intolerable cruelty was written by a uh, Timmy yeah. Uh, Ro- Rockefeller?
0: Yeah, Donald Trump Jr. <laughs> what? <laughs>
1: Donald Trump Jr. No, yeah. Cro- let's get
0: that. Let's so, get that trending. Yeah, Jay, but Vanderbilt read Robert Graysmith's book in high school, and as this case does to people, mm-hmm. he became deeply invested. In the ins and outs oh, yeah. of the Zodiac case. Um, and kind of kept in the back of his head as a um, dream project. Ooh. As he went to film school, became a professional screenwriter, became a producer, got involved in the in the biz, that kind of thing. He does like a yeah. lot of Spider-Man now. Oh, um, good for him. Yeah, he's very, very successful on his own merits. Good yeah. for him have you You know not not every child of wealth is a failed son
1: yeah um, he's a he's, he's a rare very, he's a he's a very non-failed successful,
0: son. Very, very successful guy and very talented guy clearly an actual um, son he's a son an <laughs> actual son who went <laughs> off to do his own thing you know, <laughs> for there, him there is something to say about when you come from wealth the freedom to walk on the edge and experiment and try things is a little bit more there when you're worried about breaking your leg and having to start to go fund me on the other side of things, regardless. <laughs> um, he had gone through it, though, and he ended up meeting Robert Gray Smith mm-hmm. and, like, getting in further with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had kind of gone through the process. He was in the mix, so he meets up with producers Mike Metavoy and Bradley Fisher of Phoenix Pictures and pitches them if they can get the rights to it he would like to write this on the contractually obligated that he gets creative control over it. He wants to be able to see it through completely with his own vision of what it is. Mm -hmm. They agree because they all end up, these producers, Vanderbilt and Graysmith, end up at the premiere... Of Paul Schrader's film Autofocus, which of course is based on a book by Robert Graysmith. Wow. They agree. They (laughs) discovered that the rights have been languishing in another studio for a decade. They get the rights to it as a group. We're going to make this happen. Of course, the first on their list to, they need a director. Mm -hmm. First on the list to direct this movie is David Fincher of course, based on the fact he made the definitive serial killer picture of the era. Seven. Can he pull it off? Yeah, can he do it again? We'll see. Um, And he is working on... He is concurrently doing the Black Dahlia, Mm -hmm. which, as we mentioned, has very similar themes to Zodiac, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: but leaves that when it doesn't look like it's going to happen and moves on to Zodiac. He's drawn to Zodiac, as we mentioned, due to the fact he actually has a personal connection beyond any of the other thematic elements to it um upon joining up he's actually really drawn to the unresolved ending he's drawn he feels it's true to real life as cases are not always solved um he it's so funny he, that he, he is said he wanted he, to dispel the mythic stature of the case by going through it piece by piece
1: it's so fascinating that he is a guy who is like one of the most technically Competent directors of all time. Everything has to be perfect. Every every um, film he makes a perfectly crafted bobble. But he is just obsessed with mess. He loves the the, the messiness of reality. And, and it's, it's yeah. What a weird uh, the, what a weird the, juxtaposition. The
0: the, inf- the fallibility of human beings. Yeah, even heroes. Mm. Like he wants to take people down a notch. He he definitely does not seem to have hero worship as part of his. Mindset. Oh yeah, I he mean hates, witness yeah. witness his treatment of Orson Welles' bank to come. <laughs> like, Joel, <laughs> yeah. A guy, most people would be like, "Oh, don't don't you love him?" Well, yeah, everyone loves Orson. Yeah, <laughs> everyone loves Orson. Yeah. So, um, Fincher, though, felt that there had been much too much speculation, too much mythology, too much of this, that, and the, the other hearsay. You name it. Mm-hmm. So he felt the best thing to do was, as a team, himself. Vanderbilt and Fisher to essentially reopen and re-interview everyone who was alive at that time who was involved they wanted to go case by case case by case, crime by crime and and go through it all as investigators. He also felt he had a burden of responsibility because this movie, both to people who are victims in this movie who are real Mm -hmm. and the fact that they Possibly are pointing the finger at a perpetrator. Yeah, in this film, who is yeah. also dead in real life, who can't, can't defend himself, can't defend himself from, um, you know. And I would say, you know, we'll get there. Um, you buy it, yeah.
3: <laughs> they get the end of the movie. They like, they they sell, they sell
0: it. Well, they're trying to sell it to
3: you. They're trying to sell, yeah, it. and it's
0: they, and it's it's, it's very um, appealing what they're selling they have a pretty specific idea of who based on their deductions did it <laughs> and they sell it pretty damn well they you know yeah. the, he is a shoe salesman <laughs> yeah, yeah for sure uh so they spent months interviewing witnesses family members of suspects retired and current investigators they found two two of the surviving victims ex mayors of san francisco and vallejo wow Um, And Fincher said, even when we did our interviews, we talked to two people. One would confirm some aspects, one would deny. Plus, so much time had passed, memories are affected, and the different telling of the stories would change perception. Man. So when there was any doubt, they just went to the police reports. So apparently, the person who wrote the most extensive and detailed police reports was Inspector Bill Armstrong, who we will talk about in just a moment. But I wanted to let you know that interesting that a huge amount of what they're going off of is this person's notes wow um they had um they even went to a forensic linguistics expert to analyze the letters and have them done and they focused instead on how the zodiac formed the structure of sentences rather than letter formation and spelling to see if they could figure it out. Needless to say, and this is on the special features, pretty much every department head on this movie and everyone who worked on this movie all the way through, by the end of the shoot, had convinced themselves that they could possibly be the ones who solved this case. Mm -hmm. That kind of dedication from Fincher on down the group. Kind of. Wow. And that's what this case does to people. (laughs) It's... (laughs) It feels like some sort
1: of, like, monkey's paw, or like a, like, it feels like some sort of haunted artifact that, like, it'll, like, take your mind, because, like, the allure, it does seem like there's, it's, like, deceptively, maybe not simple, but it seems like you look at all the pieces, and it's like, well, there's enough
0: pieces here to make this jigsaw. But it seems, yeah. So we sit going into it, all the president's men was the template, and kind of how he wanted to do it. The non-template was he did not want it to be Dirty Harry. We'll talk about Dirty Harry in just a moment here. Also, super <laughs> uh,
1: super fascinating that Bill Armstrong was the guy who had the most uh, complete notes in that yeah. like he pieces. He, well, he yeah.
0: is proven that he is perhaps the most level-headed member yeah. of the group. Um, yep. So what he wanted to do, because all the presidents men was a template because he was a story reporter, determined to get the story at any cost, and mm-hmm. one who, had, who was new to being an investigative reporter.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: It was all about his obsession. It's all about obsession to know the truth. The other thing that all the presidentsman does is does not spend any time telling backstory of any mm-hmm. of the characters, focusing completely on the moment and what they do with regards to the case. There's nothing more or less to them than that. All of them also really like the kind of rags to riches element of a cartoonist turned lead investigator. Yeah, very <laughs> major serial killer. And, um, Vanderbilt even pitched it as what if Gary Trudeau of Doonesbury woke up one morning and tried to solve the son of Sam and boy if you're an executive like I actually like I think that that's like that's very interesting I would want to I want to see that movie in many iterations like yeah because if you put someone who does not know any better into a situation into a deeply dangerous situation in there, mm-hmm. in, in its own way Yeah, so, I would love a, I'd love a Mindhunter starring Jim Davis yeah exactly um so the movie opens with a credit sequence by emma king lewis where fincher again hits you over the head with his kind of credit sequence capturing tone and this time around it's just typeface simplicity but with Mm -hmm. a brilliant montage of a zodiac letter going through the mail to be delivered to the san francisco chronicle to kind of start our proceedings we see um you know, and we mentioned it's a newspaper movie. The second we entered the Chronicles offices, mm-hmm. he's shooting it in the same vein as he sh- they shot the Washington Post in All the President's Men. Should we notice some other um key influences on this movie? The Black Dahlia book, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um In Cold Blood, the Truman Capote book and mm-hmm. movie that it was based on, kind of the initial like personality based true crime. but in cold blood if we want to really go back to it is the first true crime
3: oh yeah so okay. smash
1: yeah the true german capote is like magnum opus for sure for yeah sure. and uh, yeah you know
0: read it if you haven't read it see the movie if you haven't seen it yeah it's all great. <laughs> you know? R- re- read it in high school uh very good and then also should know uh some key san francisco movies uh mm-hmm. everything from bullet to dirty harry to invasion of the body the <laughs> Philip Kaufman invasion of the body snatchers, capture the weird vibes of San Francisco. Especially yeah. the the 70s San Francisco. You know, we should note that like Zodiac was not the only weird thing going on in the late sixties and early seventies in San Francisco. We had the rise of the and eventual fall of the Jim Jones cult was going yeah. on. Yeah. Very similarly, we had all the hippie action on haight Ashbury, counterculture. The the yeah, the overall counterculture thing, and of and then you know on top of all of that, there is the um, you know, shortly thereafter, toward the late seventies, the assassination of Harvey Milk and the mayor of San Francisco. Big yeah. There are weird things going on. And then this in the is world. also. And this is not that far away from Manson. Manson did time and the hate.
1: Oh, for sure. Well, and it's (laughs) like, this is all pre. like, I feel like we all have such a sanitized view of San Francisco now. It's just all like tech at this point. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that long ago when that place was like, not a tech haven at all. It was its own weird place with its own weird like counterculture.
0: But it's like, that vibe is also there, and I think even today, what makes the tech thing weird is mm-hmm. their whole embrace of like things like Burning Man, and it kind of still holding on to thinking they are counterculture.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like the equivalent to being like it feels like um, it's like a uh, it's like you're wearing a hippie, you're like their cockroach in Men in Black, wearing like a skin
0: that doesn't belong to you. I think too, the other interesting thing that was going on in the Bay Area was mm-hmm. um Philip K. Dick was based out of there at that time of writing all of his stories. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just it's like this epicenter and not being not being very far from LA and like we like we said with the Manson stuff and everything like that. Like California in the late sixties to mid seventies mm-hmm. was kind of at a boiling point in a very yeah. in like historically unique way. And of course, this is combined with the national stuff of the major assassinations of the Kennedys, Martin Luther King, and of course the conflict of Vietnam. Yeah. So everyone is on edge. we we'll is just yeah. put it out. Everyone like, is on edge.
1: It's very much like a, a, a microcosm of America. Like it's very much like this is what's going on on
0: a national scale in this one place condensed. Mm-hmm. And then the other movie from 74 that is very different but claims to be based on a true story and claims to be based on a true story that does not leave you feeling very good at the end of it. Oh, no. It's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
2: Which... Ooh,
0: <laughs> interesting. I did not see this coming. Yeah, I don't the... <laughs> know if you did. But, no, I like um, this, though. I like it. You know, and Ooh, I continue. think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of the key movies in the 70s. Oh, for and sure. I mean, for I th- sure. I think it's the greatest horror movie ever made. Yeah. On top of all that, too, um, and it's a devastating movie with no answers, provides no background. These people just mm-hmm. stumble on this thing, and it's terrible. Yeah, it, it feels like found
1: footage. Like it's very like it feels like you're stumbling upon a horrifying
0: artifact. You, yes, and you feel like Jesus, this is just out there. Yeah. And it hasn't. They weren't caught. It ends yeah. with him dancing with the chainsaw and that poor girl screaming. <laughs> yeah, like, not great.
1: Not great. not great. Yeah, you had <laughs> yeah, a good mood after that. I mean,
0: very good mood because we watched a great movie. But <laughs> so all of that is happening, and so when we get into the San Francisco Chronicle, it's a busy days for mm. the folks of the San Francisco Chronicle. Although it's interesting to me is that the newsroom doesn't seem that full ever. No in this movie. Unlike in President's Men, everybody's working and screaming and on the phones yeah, like the entire out. time. Like This one, it seems like everyone's just kind of out doing their thing. And yeah. so we meet um, an editorial meeting where we get the first letter, and they have to decide if they're going to publish. They find out other papers have gotten stuff too. And what, who we meet is lead investigator Paul Avery. Lead Ooh. reporter. Played by the great, you know, you know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we don't need the superlatives... Are what they are with this guy, uh, Robert he's... Downey Jr. In a role, he's just like, like a glove. I mean, he was yeah. Like this is in a role he's born to play. This is not like out, too outside the box for R.D.J. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a flamboyant, brilliant, uh, caustic, yeah, chain, perhaps chain smoking, a little tortured, saddled, tortured, mm-hmm. you know. He's, but he's the man. They put up with him. They, you could tell from the second you're introduced to him, they put up with him because he's so, he's such a wizard. Yeah, at what he does, he gets in with people. You know, he's like he ingratiates himself with the people. He's kind of in that way that you just, again, something that just doesn't exist anymore in the same way. Kind of the star, yeah, reporter, but the star reporter who's like, of the people. And yeah, this rather is like, than the star is, reporter who went to harvard and like is just kind of like a nerd genius like they are today
1: yeah this is the era of the jimmy breslin and the studs turkle mm-hmm.
0: exactly so, yeah exactly yeah like the personality the guy is about in and out you could are probably gonna run into them at the pub yeah he after grew up hours. in the damn neighborhood yeah yeah exactly exactly Man. and um Wait, we need to get back to that well yeah yeah that's, that's just fair. that is fun, <laughs>
3: yeah, fun it, it rules those and guys rule
0: yeah and so and he was he was actually born in Hawaii interestingly yeah. enough Paul Avery uh, his um oh but and he kind of bounced around a bit in his young career until he did end up in 1959 starting at the <laughs> San Francisco Chronicle. Yeah. So, he began reporting on the Zodiac pretty much immediately and kind of being the lead guy in trying to figure this thing out. Meanwhile though in this meeting we are also introduced to um, young political cartoonist Robert Graysmith, played mm-hmm. by Jake Gyllenhaal. Many, many would remember from Ambulance. <laughs> <But> <laughs> he is kind of a goofy fly on the wall. Yeah. Kind of like he wants to just turn in his cartoons. But what is presented to them is not just this letter, which is very cryptic, but the Ultra cryptic, you know, puzzle yeah. that is presented.
1: The the cipher,
0: the cipher that is presented as well that mm. needs to be solved. We learn about that. Regray Smith is literally an Eagle Scout Yeah. who is kind of like um, a dork, bit of a yeah, bit of a Donny Dorko, Donny Dorko. And <laughs> what I like, what I think is so interesting about Jake Gyllenhaal is that. Mm. He's a hunk. Let's just oh, you want, tear that sure. band-aid around. He's a good-looking guy. But he's got this weird edge where you don't... like. He can't actually play someone who's a traditional hero at all. I actually think he falters most as an actor when he plays a regular guy. Which he, the, is counterintuitive to how he looks.
1: There, right? There's, a, there's a, a juxtaposition with the softness of his face and the The bug outness of his eyes, where you get the sense that like you, it makes you wonder like was this guy like an ex Scientologist or like a was he in a cult at some point? Like there's something very like
0: something hidden in him. Yeah,
1: there are like uh, there are insects in his brain scuttering about. There's a darkness. And everyone's favorite roles
0: he's ever played Mm -hmm. kind of lean in Donnie Darko, Mm -hmm. um, all the way to our beloved ambulance. Yeah, uh, but Nightcrawler obviously is one mm. people point to. He when he plays a character who's a little more unhinged. Yeah, you know, no one's looking back on the Prince of Persia, ever. <laughs> yeah, even him, he's not looking back on it. But I think, uh. and he, I think he recognizes that, and I think he's tried to cultivate that some mm-hmm. as his career has progressed. But it makes him as this guy who. You know, as we will talk about, kind of mm-hmm. goes through this journey. He's actually really well suited to someone who is surface one thing, yeah. but perhaps in the inside, going is a much more unique soul. Yeah. It. Well, he could have 100% played Holden and Mindhunter.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Like so, it's very, yes, yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And yeah, it's interesting because we're, we're going to talk a bit about kind of the. His in particular reaction to David Fincher's style, which mm-hmm. was not positive, but he actually does feel like a David Fincher actor. He like, is 100%. in the same vein that Brad Pitt is, because I think Brad Pitt's a very similar guy. Mm-hmm. Because Brad Pitt's such a good-looking guy, but he's never good at playing. Like he feels so uncomfortable in Troy.
1: Yeah, or instance. like meet Joe Black or whatever. Yeah, like, like, yeah. He can't. He can't
0: play like the perfect lead. He has to be like Floyd in True Romance, or that dumb dumb dummy plays in Burn After Reading. Like, that's where he feels. Or Benjamin Button.
1: Yeah. Or the transcendent weirdo in 12 Monkeys. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He's much more comfortable getting a little funky with it, playing outside, playing outsiders who are a little more, you know, like have a little more going on. And it's interesting. Like, I guess we can't all be George Clooney in which we're just very comfortable in our skin and like, it's like, yeah, the per- I like, like yeah, yeah, I'll play the perfect man. No big deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good at that. You know, it's like, because <laughs> it's me. I, I'm perfect. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it's they have to. It's it's very interesting. So yeah. we meet them. We get kind of a feel of the office. We could kind of feel of their relationships with the office. De Fincher does this great opening sequence in which we see the office. We you get it. the um, geography. And the layout of the office so we know where everybody's gonna be, where where Robert Downey's desk is, where Graysmith's desks is, where is the secretary's, where is the mailroom, all these things that are gonna come up later. So when we get through them, when people are walking through constantly doing stuff, we know kind of the layout. Yeah. We know <laughs> who's who, we know who's in charge. But venture the premier things.
1: cinematic cartographer.
0: Yeah, the the um the layout is really well done. So that mm-hmm. gives us a massive jump cut to Lake Berryessa, which is in uh, picturesque Napa County. Mm
2: -hmm. And
0: you get to perhaps the most harrowing sequence in this movie. And he does it early in this movie, which is like, I thought I was going to lose Jen the other night, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, Um, It's rough. Law student Brian Hartnell and his girlfriend, Cecilia Shepard, are having a picnic. They're joking around, you know. We, and, and then they show some behind the scenes footage and they show Finch really, really satisfied with these two actors.
2: Mm-hmm. Because
0: what they are able to do in like two minutes of screen time, we know exactly who they are. We kind of find them endearing. Yeah. We know them. enough. Yeah. So that what follows is gut wrenching.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: the way he shoots it, those wide lenses, the zodiac in the distance just strolling towards them in broad daylight like all these elements that are put together to make this so terrifying Yeah. one of the reasons I think that they do this in these sequences is to get you as a viewer to feel extraordinary empathy that it isn't just like um, a movie killing that Mm -hmm. this was real these were real people now we will understand why the characters we get to know are so desperate
1: yeah i mean like this crime well and it's like the thing is is you know the other shoes going to drop you know they're going to they're going to pass and so drag dragging it out only heightens the tension only like the the fear like because you're just like you're waiting it's like
0: uh you're just waiting for the band-aid to rip off after a while you're like uh it's It's a it's a rough and very scary sequence that feels very real Mm -hmm. it's a a brutal murder it uh, is yeah the young and much like the first one the young woman passes somehow the man survives yeah and this is these are just facts mm-hmm. um and she apparently died two days later oh interesting yeah um interesting things to note here so um with this sequence their attention to detail in this movie as we've kind of brought up is um second to none for mm-hmm. almost any movie. The production designer in this movie was Donald Graham Burt. Now, we've mentioned before that um, Fincher worked with Arthur Max, who obviously also works with Ridley Scott. For most yeah. of his early movies, one of the great production designers ever. It seems Arthur Max is basically just works for Ridley Scott at this point. So Donald yeah, Graham Burt has been brought in. This is his first collaboration with Fincher. And if you go through the credits, he has been the production designer on every Fincher movie. Ooh. He's a key collaborator to this and getting the details right was essential. So one thing interesting here, this was the murder site that they shot mm-hmm. at. They were on the real location. Wow. And apparently when they were there they had um Captain Ken Narlo, one of the police officers,
2: <laughs> the Napa
0: police officer who investigated this one. The real guy was there on set to guide them through where cool. things were. Interesting. And apparently he was watching fincher and fincher got very quiet and wandered around this kind of beach side mm-hmm. oh and they brought in that tree oh that wasn't there anymore they brought it in <laughs> they, <laughs> they bring flew me a tree in it in,
2: flew it in helicopter seriously <laughs>
3: okay I, I
0: love it i love it Yeah, That's I insane replanted it. they found one in like the redwoods and brought it over or something yeah <laughs> I feel like that's, like, illegal somehow. I don't know. Ooh, that's no. incredible. Well, they replanted it, you know. <laughs> yeah. They hey, flew it in, but, yeah, so, like, the details, because that tree is, like, but when you watch it and he emerges from behind that tree, you're like, I can't imagine this any other way. No, <laughs> like, you need
1: you need the tree. The tree yeah. is, and it's, and it's like, uh ah, it's so crazy. They didn't make a tree. They, br- they brought in a real tree.
0: So what's fascinating, though, is apparently Fincher's, like, looking around, looking around, looking around, and mm-hmm. they had set it all up, and he stands up, and he goes, based on everything I read, the murder actually took place over here. And he explained why, and Narlo goes, Jesus Christ, he's right. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> so another reason why they kind of thought they were going to solve this case.
3: Like, <laughs> that is like going in
1: to filming this movie being like, maybe I'm a Graysmith, maybe I can I do this.
0: Because this movie is kind of all about how easily it is to become Graysmith. With and a little so, intuition and a little brains, you could go down that road. I mean, and, like, think about how precious it is to all the people, like, the conspiracy theorists that have emerged out there who are, like, getting, like, press and that kind of thing. Uh, Everyone thinks they can do it. It's interesting. Yeah,
1: it's such a, like, yeah, you get lost in the sauce. Like, that's uh, yeah, it's so crazy. I didn't realize that other layer. That's such a such fascinating a, layer.
0: It's such a startling, um startling sequence though. So mm-hmm. we again go back, more letters arrive,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and we're seeing the chronicle. Paul Avery makes fun of Robert Graysmith, but right. can tell Robert Graysmith's like interesting. Like mm-hmm. Avery, like any good reporter, has a real nose for like an interesting guy. Yeah. Who might be able to give him something. There there's a weird helpful. yeah. There's so there a weird helpful to him. To him. So they start like chatting and hanging out and shooting the breeze and just kind of like what do you think on this also simultaneously that kind of a great touch is some couple who like puzzles mm-hmm. solve the cipher
2: Ooh.
1: oh yeah there was like that little yeah. like the like, the teachers and Salinas or whatever yeah
0: they solve the <laughs> cipher based on going to the library and that gives Gray Smith, like, I'm gonna go to the library and check out all of these books on code, military codes and cypher, and plants the idea, like, oh, he must have been military because he knows how to do codes. Yeah. All of these things are start popping up.
1: I do love that scene in that movie because it's like I feel like no other every other director would be like, nah, this is like uh, you know, these characters don't factor into the movie in any capacity. I think a lot of people would say that's superfluous and they would just like use it as a um, they just have like a throwaway piece of dialogue stating that mm-hmm. happened. Having the people physically doing it in the copy, like and
0: yeah. Kind of like from their living room so it's like and how it's an early example of oh this is intriguing to everyone who touches it.
1: Yeah it's important it's
0: good. And they're going to spend like, their yeah. time trying to figure out what is going on here this yeah. is weird and you have to also remember this outside of like Maybe the Texas Tower shooter.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Weird things were new. On an yeah, you know, like real, like or if they were around, they were way more underground. It wasn't like a big social topic. Weird. Yeah, w- we live in the era now of weird things. Twenty-four. 24- yeah, th- like Austin's
1: freaking, uh you know, Tower shooter. Speaking of, like, yeah, mm-hmm. they're like, it's keep Austin weird, right?
0: Yeah. And I mean, it's, that haunts. It's, it's them. mainstream. I mean, you, watch, you watch Slacker, and that still haunts Austin in mm. the early 90s. But now, I mean, there's a, sadly, mm-hmm. you know, every day. Yeah. There's something inexplainable and weird. Yeah. And the and, sort of hunt for answers has only gotten crazier among and, fairly normal people. Well, and people have realized that,
1: like, weird cells, mm-hmm. And so it's been yeah. totally weirdly. Mainstreamed, and uh, because we have to, we have this desire to like look for it, or we're, because like we know that weird cells, like there are now like an infinite number of things that are unsolvable that we can like delve also our minds you, into at any time.
0: Also, if you want to get really existential and weird with it, um, oh. since religion is far less of a factor compared to how it was in the 60s and backwards, the hunt for God has been replaced in the hunt for these existential answers as to why these weird things happen. Crime, religion. (laughs) Sad, scary. Think about that, folks. Anyway, so we get to but then we go to the innocuous streets of San Francisco and a taxi driver. A guy gets in the car Mm -hmm. and in this sequence we get perhaps one one of the most memorable effects. This movie is like very effects mm-hmm. heavy, but you wouldn't necessarily know it. Like, for instance, that opening shot of going through the San Francisco Bay to show the waterfront mm-hmm. is a complete effect shot.
2: Oh, yeah. But the little because tugboat. It
0: doesn't, because it doesn't look like that. No. Anymore. No. Like, it's all different now. Looks great. It, and it, you can't even, yeah. can't even tell. Yeah. looks amazing. So same with this sequence. Fincher does this above. This God's eye view of the taxi cab as yeah. it's going down the streets it looks a little funky and weird, but it's kind of supposed to. All of yeah. this is like a CG shot. The complete and then, thing.
1: While well, that's happening, too, there's like radio playing in the background. Um, oh, I love it. It's and, and it's very like um, th- that great, shot.
0: Yeah. yeah. One of the great things he does and the same thing that Tarantino does in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is. And they go. This goes all the way back to Peter Bogdanovich's film Targets. Actually, is using the radio, switching the channels, the music playing, the radio announcers to kind of capture a vibe of the time. Yeah, oh, that's feeling, great. Which is always cool. It's cool, mm. baby. <laughs> yeah, it works. It does the job. And so the um, the cab pulls up, and like, where do you want to stop? The passenger in the back seat pulls out a gun and shoots the cab driver in the back of the head. This um, tune from the band. Oh shit! Um, sorry, sorry, folks. Give me, give me one moment to look up the van. Uh, 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 vanilla fudge. Oh, the, the guys who do. You keep me hanging on. You keep
3: me hanging and on.
0: So it's um, yes, vanilla fudge, and there, it's bang bang. And I love the interesting connotations here because bang bang was used in Kill Bill. Bang bang shot you down. Bang bang. Hmm. But also vanilla fudge. It's a very similar song in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where the Mansons enter Rick Dalton's house at the end of it. And that's the soundtrack Mm. to that final sequence. So it gives you that same kind of like 60s, the same way that the Mamas and the Papas used to sound fun and like of a time, and now they just sound creepily nostalgic
1: whenever yeah. you hear them I'm like that <laughs> it's it's, the they sound, it sounds winsome or like it sounds like uh melancholy
0: there's like a yeah. melancholy to them yeah california dreaming like sounds like a sad loss yeah than a, like hey we're all in california dreaming baby you yeah
1: I, I, yeah I, yeah and then and i feel like vanilla fudge similarly like there's like a um there's like a depth to their music where like they it's it feels like there's more going on in the background than
0: uh yeah yeah it's it's kind of scary in the same way that um hurdy-gurdy man is donovan's hurdy-gurdy man is and so that goes to that and david just is this like calm pull out shot of the cab and the killer kind of getting out wiping things down then running off Mm -hmm. so all this is huge credit to the cinematographer of the film harris savitas harris savitas of course late great harris savitas worked with david fincher on the game Did a bunch of commercial work. Fincher is quoted as saying, if he, you know, at the time when Savitas was with us, he, um, Fincher would basically say, yeah, he's one of the most in demand cinematographers, but if he's available, he's who I'm going with. Yeah. He's my dude. Uh, This film was one of the initial films shot on the super high end digital camera. The camera used on this movie was a Thompson Viper, which was Mm -hmm. also used um, on. Collateral and Miami Vice, which I put those three as kind of the three key. Obviously, they did it on Star Wars and a few of the big budget ones, but I think the right. kind of tour artier-driven movies, mm-hmm. they were the three of the huge initial ones to say, hey, this is doable. Yeah, with a you can make... Camera. Yeah, digital can be a, um, and, a an aesthetic that works. And they also present it too, they're not attempting film mm-hmm. in any of these. They are attempting... To utilize digital for what it does best.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, in this movie, they did use film for any slow motion shot. They weren't there technologically yet to get what they needed for the low light, slow motion that they get. And those are both in the murder scenes. Oh. Is where those are done. But Harris Sevilla's work in this film is both an elegant throwback to kind of the Gordon Willis, all the president's men parallax view style look. Mm-hmm. And an ultra, like, it also it's one of the few movies ultra high modern look too. Yeah. But still looks like a movie. It doesn't look like a video game. It doesn't look like a cartoon. No! It's like, still looks like a movie but it's a modern movie. It's with all the cool new shit. Yeah. It it shows the
1: potential for modern film. Like, we don't have to just be like, you know, uh, films, a mature cinema didn't just exist in the past. We can make it We can move forward in our own way, which is incredible. Which I think,
0: you know, whatever, but it's a gorgeous, gorgeous looking film. And this leads us to this sequence. The investigation starts with the San Francisco PD. And we are introduced to our third main character, detective inspector, pardon me, inspector, David Tosky played Mm. by Mark Ruffalo and his partner who doesn't get top billing. He's not on the poster. But I would argue is the fourth lead of the movie, Inspector Bill Armstrong, who we mentioned, provided many of the notes, who's played by Anthony Edwards, Goose. Yeah, Goose. Oh, and he brings that Goose energy. He's so
1: like, he's just such a, I think Anthony Edwards might be the premier normal guy in cinema.
0: And David Fincher even like said, he's like, what is the key thing we know about Bill Armstrong? He's decent. Who's the most decent guy we know? Anthony Edwards. That's who. You know, that was kind of how he deducted. It, it, it. tracks. Also, yeah, it tracks.
1: very telling that, like, yeah, he's kind of like the heart of the movie, and then he pieces out at a certain I, point
0: because he's the only one who knows when it's time to call it a day. Yeah, and that's a very, very important. That scene is hugely important when he quits. Mm, so. so, they arrive on the scene. uh David Tosky, Ruffalo. You know, you can tell from the jump he's got these like bow ties. He's got the Columbo jacket. He's got the big yeah. hair. He's kind of like a, he's carrying around animal crackers. That's kind of what he snacks on as he's like investigating things and use, deducing things. He's larger than life. So what's fascinating about this sequence when they first start the taxi camp, looking around, trying to figure it all out. So the entire movie, one of the big goals, and we mentioned it in the Lake Berryessa merger sequence, they want to shoot as close to where things took place as they could.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. close to life this street apparently is one of the richest streets in the heart of San Francisco and the neighbors did not want a David Fincher film crew taking up their making noise and taking up their streets and they have the power to say no Mm. so this entire sequence is CG in a parking lot in like Lancaster California crazy it's seamless Mm -hmm. they shot all the plates they shot all the plates on that scene did the cg to turn it into a 1960s version of it and then if you watch the behind the scenes there literally as mark ruffalo's walking there's a green screen on a dolly track moving behind him
1: that's incredible i love that like he's doing like yeah like stuff that like people only do for like avatar I he know. is doing good rules. I love I that. Know.
0: And to get it right. And to make it yeah. seamless. To work within, the, within that structure. And you don't even notice. Not at all. Watching the film. It doesn't stick out. There's maybe one shot. It's a big wide shot where Ruffalo kind of walks in the middle of the road and kind of like looks up and down the street. If yeah. You know it's it's to get CG, there. If you know it's CG then you could kind of call it out. But if you didn't know that, if I ruined things for you I'm sorry. Mm. <laughs> but <laughs> Sorry. <leave that>. So <laughs> The investigation is on. We've got all of our characters. And what we find out is that holy crap, this Berryessa murder, this Vallejo murder, and this mm-hmm. taxicab murder, this guy is writing the Chronicle and stating he's responsible for all of them across different counties, different jurisdictions, which means we've got a massive library of characters. Yes. <laughs> to meet and greet who are all part of this investigation, who all though are so well cast and mm-hmm. so quickly defined that you kind of like and care about every single one of them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So in addition to our, th- to our four leads, we are, we meet, um, let's start with Sergeant Jack Malnax of Vallejo played by the great Elias coteus who we met on shooter. Last week okay. or two weeks ago, yeah. whenever that was.
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> he played such a um, what, such an evil heavy in that film, and it's nice seeing him. It's nice seeing Elias uh, Coteas play like a uh, a... he has such range. He's like I one think, of the I, best I, he character has such actors, range,
0: and I, I mean, I love him. I mean, my favorite is, of course, Thin Red Line.
1: Yeah, I was thinking that too. Like,
0: yeah, he but plays like,
1: or he plays he's... like
0: the nicest school teacher. <laughs> but he's like a total creepo in David Cronenberg's Crash. Yeah. Yeah, I mean so he yeah, he's he has it of, all one of the very best character actors around. He's kind of one of the older guys. Yeah, a little he's more grizzled. He's got a little seeing it all kind of thing. But the thing about it, what unites every single one of there is no like um Paul Riser in Aliens type character who's got it, their own kind of like selfish mm-hmm. desires. They all want to solve the case. It's all they yeah. want. Yeah. <laughs> and it's fantastic because of that we also meet out of the napa captain is captain ken narlo played by Bar- academy academy hall of famer and our beloved donna loge
2: Ooh. like
0: mr steve himself fantastic in the picture yes. um oh Molnax's partner the younger guy is detective george Bowart, who's played by james legros Who's like really a fun character actor? Yeah. Um, Great cast, this movie. uh, The captain of the San Francisco cops, Captain Marty Lee, is Dermot Maroney. So good. He's another great. Every time you see him. He's like the heavy, but he never comes down on them. Give me your badge and gun. Like, he's like, I want to solve this too. See, that's
1: the thing I love about. David Fincher, is he's able to make movies feel cinematic, even though he eschews all the classic cinematic tropes. He never indulges in that There's in this so movie. so
0: many great moves mm. with music, editing, effects, yes. like when you have the Zodiac letters being read by the different characters in voiceover while the letters are like literally transposed on screen in the background as they're walking through offices. Uh. Like The way he, he compresses and establishes time yeah it's just phenomenal and how much these guys are going through it i should note um the the head of like the justice department mel nicholais played by zach grenier who was the boss of oh, yeah Fight club mm-hmm. who edward norton beats the <laughs> shit out of himself in front of
1: yeah he has uh, some good
0: lines also really really fun is um the sherwood moral the handwriting expert played by philip ba- the great philip baker hall I love and like, yeah, it's like number two guy, Terry Pasco, who's played by John Ennis from Mr. Show. Yeah. Owns the Yard <laughs> Theater. Uh,
1: but uh, like he's like he's it's so funny. Uh, I love the Sherwood character because this movie is a great, you know, great at like, you know, pulling the rug from under you because that character, he comes in and he has such an air of um, importance. And he seems like the father figure that knows that can't. He seems infallible but to a then... certain degree.
0: They reveal they're like, oh, he's a drunk. you can't trust him at all. He's like, and you're like, what?
3: Oh no! By that
0: point, Grace is like in bed with, like practically in bed with him. Like, we need this guy. (laughs) Like, it's just like, and it goes back to what Fisher was saying. One guy's saying one thing, one guy's saying another thing, Mm -hmm. and then also part of somehow part of the investigation team, a peripheral member, is attorney Melvin Belli. Oh, read about this guy not at all Absolutely i'm so fascinating character so yeah played by brian cox brian played by brian cox apparently they tried to get gary oldman Ooh. to play him but they couldn't get the appliances right and they needed somebody heftier basically and brian cox like walks in is like okay you're him
2: like you yeah know, you're,
0: you're... <laughs> he's so he's so good in that by the way so he is known as the king of the torts his celebrity clients included jaja gabor errol flynn chuck berry Muhammad Ali, the Rolling Stones, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, Tony Curtis, Mae West, and perhaps most importantly, he was Jack Ruby's lawyer after Jack Weird. Ruby assassinated Lee Harvey Oswald.
1: Why do that? Weird.
0: Weird. So guy, like a celebrity lawyer. Like a, a guy it, you like, could make a movie about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, he had, like totally his own thing. Like this three-wheeling yeah. guy who because he was famous, oh, he had done things like um he wanted of course, even predating all these other folks, he really wanted to be an actor. He was on well, like an course. episode of Star Trek and they bring it up. Yeah, if you watch um Gimme Shelter, the great Rolling Stones documentary, he's representing them in the ultimate. Thing wow. That occurred of course in 1969 mm-hmm. free concert in the Bay Area where guess what more weird shit happened and a guy was murdered in front of the Rolling Stones. Oh god. By <laughs> the hell's angels.
3: <laughs> I mean, cool. Like,
0: that good. Oh
1: again, no.
3: Weird,
0: weird. Very weird times. And if yeah. you think folks that we are living in the weirdest of times, it just seems like it's just a continued set of weird times that started yeah. 50 years ago. It's always been weird. It's, it's always been a little weird. Yeah. It's just now we have more access to media news. Yeah, <laughs> we have. Yeah, we can access the weird quicker. And the Zodiac maybe mm-hmm. is demanding to speak at one point with Melvin Velli and maybe be even represented by him. And it gets kind of stranger from there. Mm hmm. So it also should be noted that David Fincher made it a fascinating choice that every time you hear or see a physical or verbal representation of the Zodiac on screen in this movie, it is played by different actors.
1: Ooh. That makes to sense.
0: To further put you on mm. your toes.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's, like, something that's, like, been, you know, ballied
0: about, too. Like, that, like... Because it's, like,
1: the, the um... The the, the,
0: the, uh, the the theory that it could be more than one Zodiac.
1: Yeah, because, like, the, the, the um... Taxicab
0: murder is so incongruous. It's yeah. yeah. yes, yes, absolutely, which they kind of bring up in the movie, but if you're, again, like we all are, mm. you can, sadly, we can all, like, say, oh, serial killers, they follow, you know, certain rituals. And tradition. Yeah, because we've seen so many fucking movies or listened to so many
1: yeah. podcasts.
3: Yeah, that's
1: all they, yeah, they, that's bullshit, like, yeah, people don't, like, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah why should we even know this but everyone knows this Yeah. (laughs) so he does that to keep you on your toes Um, we'll get in a moment here we'll bury the lead a bit on our prime suspect because we got to talk about some other stuff first we'll get to the Mm -hmm. prime suspect in just a moment we also want to talk about the 50 takes David Fincher thing and how this was the movie I think it was known that he did that Mm mm-hmm but this was the movie where it kind of came out in the press about, oh, he does 50 to 100 takes and he kills his actors. Right. Because Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr. were not thrilled with any of it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. even in the behind the scenes, they do 50 takes of Jake Gyllenhaal dropping a notebook on a, in a, on the car seat in his car. Oh, my God. And they keep cutting to Gyllenhaal, like looking like he wants to die. <laughs> probably because he does in that moment probably because he does <laughs>
1: yes well and, hey that's a, that's a way to get that uh, look i guess
0: and yeah and he wants to suck it out of him but they're both like this was brutal and i don't think certainly i don't think jake joan hall will ever be working with david fincher again mm-hmm. um who knows though yeah a good part a good part is a good part I mean, that's (laughs) the thing. It's like that's the allure of the Finchman. Like you know, you know, you're gonna get a juicy, beady role. A much, a much more level-headed nature. Robert or Mark Ruffalo was like, "This is weird. Is this like, is this a trick? Are you punking me?" Yeah, his thought on it. Then he started to kind of understand there was a method to the madness of what he was trying to accomplish, which was suck out any of the actorness out of them. Mm. Essentially. So, yeah, leave one leave the, him raw. One of the very, very funny things about this movie, one of the key figures in the casting of this movie was Jennifer Aniston. Of all people. Oh, I should know, David Fincher's casting director is Lorraine Mayfield. I don't think we've brought them up before on the show. They've worked with David Fincher on every single project he has ever done. Mm-hmm. And are another key member of the team. Mayfield, 10 out of 10. Um, he was having dinner with Jennifer Aniston. And he simply Mm -hmm. asked, who are some actors you've liked working with? Who Mm -hmm. have you been really impressed with? And she brought up almost on the dime, Jake Gyllenhaal and the Good Girl and Mark Ruffalo. And rumor has it. So and then he got into research and he's like, oh, and then he saw Donnie Darko. And he was like, oh, that's my guy. Like that was what put him (laughs) on the top. Um, And he described him as he's an interesting double sided coin. He could do that naive thing, but he can also do possessed, which we were kind of (laughs) kind of getting to (laughs) as well. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal, of course, met with the real Robert Graysmith and videotaped him to get his mannerisms and behavior and all that kind of thing down. They do actually look kind of similar. I saw
1: a picture of Graysmith and I could see, you know, obviously Graysmith was older, but they have some physical similarities.
0: It's great casting. And um Mark Ruffalo was initially hesitant, but he met with Fincher and kind of was described what the character was and they were going to rewrite the script and get it even more in depth. And Mark Ruffalo is like like the angle on it. Mm -hmm. I think he's like one of those guys because he's a if you've seen him on social media, he's a very like. Yeah, mind. he's a high minded guy, with you know, he's got a very like ethical kind of guy, it seems
2: very, yeah, socially progressive, very, very
0: progressive kind of and I think doing like a murder movie.
2: And his, not cup his,
0: tea. Not his cup, but he got into it and he began like everyone else. He read every report, read every book, started <laughs> hanging out with the real Dave Tosky, and was like, "I'm into this. Maybe like, I can it." I like, it? The, I like, I like this guy. Like, and you could see it when on the behind the scenes when Dave Tos the real Dave Tosky visits the set. They're like arm in arm with each other. He loves him, <laughs> loves him. He's a great guy. Um. And then, of course, Anthony Edwards, like we said, here's the Fincher's Code. I knew I needed the most decent person I could find, and because he would balance, he would be the balance of the movie And a weird mm-hmm. way, this movie wouldn't exist without Bill Armstrong, so Anthony Edwards was the only choice. That's kind of how they went about it, and they shot and shot and shot, which drove a lot of them nuts, but mm-hmm. again, you yeah. drink Gyllenhaal a couple of glasses of wine and tell him what he thinks, what's the best movie he was ever in. Hmm. not gonna be prince of persia i don't think you need the wine for that (laughs) (laughs) and so from this point on the investigation is on and we just go deeper and deeper as the characters avery starts getting into it Toski and armstrong start getting into it the side characters from the different counties start getting into it they're getting mm-hmm. letters. It's all kind of progressing and time is passing. They're getting a lot of red herrings and loose ends and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Until they come across, they get a phone call mm-hmm. about a guy who is um, working as a engineer, I believe. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um... The guy with the glasses. I
2: know. Maybe.
0: And he he says he knew some guy who Mm -hmm. was found with knives at Lake Berryessa, but said he was fishing. Said some really weird things and was a convicted pedophile. Yeah. Not great. Uh, By the name of Arthur Lee Allen. So in 1971, mind you, this is two years after. Mm hmm. And it's also been two years since there's been a murder. There's been a lot of threats. There's been, he said he was going to kill the people, in the you know, all these kind of things. But no, it's been a bit silent. Yeah. The actual, the crimes. It's melted into the background at this point a little
1: bit. Yeah. And it's and society beginning to
0: give the feel of like, okay, society's moved on, but the people we've met in this film have not so much. And Grace Smith is still on the periphery. He's hanging out with Avery, giving him some thoughts, and then Avery's like, man, this guy's kind of we- weird enough that he has some ideas Yeah, that might be helpful.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But, so, in the p- due process of good police work, Toski, Armstrong, and Molnax go to visit, in this factory, Arthur Lee Allen, mm-hmm. who's just one of many possible suspects at
2: You're this right. point.
0: Arthur Lee Allen, in, he's played by the magnificent character actor John Carroll Lynch. It might be his best performance. I don't think you would need the wine to have John Carroll Lynch tell you that this was his. Yeah. This is his big role. It's peak. Doesn't have a lot of screen time. But what he does in this is create one of the most chilling and eerie characters in movie history.
3: It's unreal. It's so good.
0: It's like, yeah. And his introduction, this is Arguably one of the five greatest scenes David Fincher has ever put together, Mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah. Simple interrogation scene. But if you've watched Mindhunter, which is a show that did two seasons based on this one scene, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Simply cops talking to a possible suspect. Mm -hmm. But it gets eerier and eerier. And the design the way the shot, the close-ups, mm-hmm. the things that they're discovering, the looks on the cops' faces as he's saying weirder and weirder and more implicating things, but doing it he, like in this calm, straight face. Matter of fact. And he and he gets the ultimate line, the big trailer line, I'm not the Zodiac, but if I was, do you think I'd tell you?
3: <laughs> Such
2: <laughs> and, good. Like,
0: and he's got, so some of the clues the boots he's wearing are the same kind of boots Mm -hmm. he's been in the same areas the watch he's wearing is a zodiac branded watch with the zodiac logo on it Mm -hmm. it spooks our police officer characters completely and pretty thoroughly convinces them like yeah it's him it's him this is the guy guy. yeah he's the guy
1: yeah, the the like um, the way he like nonchalantly is like the knives were covered in blood in the back of my car because I was uh, I cut a chicken. I and I
0: <laughs> if you thought the murders were shot so matter factly, this interrogation scene is so like again getting to like what you like in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. I love how cool and calm and specific and mm-hmm. clean the angles are. Unvarnished. Un, un oh it's just like yeah. here here it is. When the actors do their work. Like let the edit like all of the style. No music in the scene. This this the scene.
1: Yeah, go back to the, like the chef talk, this scene is the equivalent to like going to a fancy restaurant and getting the perfect fucking bite.
0: <laughs> I know. And it's Ugh. like four ingredients. Yeah. Like and cause so <laughs> I just went to a movie the other night called Memory. Directed by a Mexican director named Michelle Franco, starring Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard. I really recommend Ooh. this movie. But he said something because he shoots pretty much. He doesn't do a lot of. He doesn't do coverage. He does pretty much one shot for each scene. Mm-hmm. There's only one right place to put a camera. I just need to find it. That's how Ooh. he put it. Fincher has said before there are a hundred places to put a camera, but there's actually only two and one is right wow that this scene he proves that every single place he puts the camera in this scene and how he moves in on everybody as the scene progresses in its intensity to the closest he saves the close-ups he doesn't use close-ups a lot in any of his work unless he absolutely needs to
1: he, we've talked about how like Han Seng Su has like a painterly approach to his film creation. Mm-hmm. He is like, David Fincher is like, he views cinema, like him filming. It's like he has the marble and he is etching out that Michelangelo you know
0: statue of David. Where is it going to be? And it's like, yeah, I think the the sign of like, this is a conversation. I mean, you've been in our kitchen before. Oh, yeah, this is a kitchen make our friends. Like, <laughs> what is our greatest obsession? Where to put that damn camera? Yeah, to get the maximum moment with the least amount. Yeah, really, and that's what makes him so good. It's he doesn't overdo anything. It's mm-hmm. just, and this scene is like a masterclass. I mean, put it with the um, it's at the same level as those two scenes in *Inglorious Bastards*. The opening sequence in *Inglorious Bastards* were, uh. Christoph Waltz goes to talk to the French farmer and the people are under the floorboards beneath them Mm -hmm. and then the um, card game scene with Michael Fassbender like that's movie making to me it is not Mm -hmm. some fancy ass shit it's how do you like gloop glue the audience in the best and frankly most simplistic way possible (laughs)
2: Like, Mm
0: -hmm. like there's no fireworks the fireworks is in the story fireworks is how you're presenting in visual storytelling mm-hmm. it's best possible way and just oh, it's phenomenal it's just you could watch it on a loop yeah, it's so cool for, forever. and you're haunted you're haunted yeah. and it, it goes down to the performances too all four actors are like firing on all cylinders you got four of the best actors in the world
2: mm-hmm. best of the Going best toe
0: to toe, being shot perfectly in a controlled environment like it's just, yeah it's everything you want and it's like okay now we've got this new thing. As an audience, we're like, oh, I'm not gonna forget this guy. They're presenting this guy like this for a reason. Yeah, it's it's just like the shiniest puzzle piece. Like this
1: is like the like this is like a part of the movie that will linger in your brain as the movie continues.
0: So then they go to the handwriting expert, they start doing all the testing and they realize like, wait a second, like some things aren't adding up. He's not perfect. Mm. And Dermot Moroni tells Mark Ruffalo like, I'm sorry. like I can't go for it. I can't get it cannot we can't no judge will buy this. We can't mm-hmm. do it. And they let it go. And then so after that scene in the theatrical version, there's just a title card that says four years later.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: In the director's cut, though, there's this musical over black musical interlude
2: oh. to show the
0: passage of time like, news clips combined with songs of the times going through yeah. for about two and a half minutes and then love we go it time and they didn't think that was like much easier Put it four years later i love it though
2: mm-hmm.
0: it's the same way that future shows the building being erected to show the passage of time man i will yeah
1: another great
0: sequel simple, yeah, like, simple way of doing it but it shows yeah. like, how long this is going on because that building probably took what three or four years to put together Titanic change, yeah. Like,
1: it's a huge... Yeah, that's like a huge... um...
0: San San Francisco is changing. The world is changing. But for our characters involved in this piece, Mm -hmm. times are not. So we cut to four years later. Oh, we should also note here the music of the picture. This is a good music, bad music, literally. David Shire did the score to the movie. Now, David Shire is kind of like... By this point, was actually not... usually in style yeah but the reason fincher went to him was in the 70s he did a ton Mm -hmm. of movie scores um looking over it he the big one to take into account he did all the president's men he did the conversation which is another movie Mm -hmm. i would put in that group conversation bay area movie too yeah also taking a pelham
1: 123
0: yeah so really groovy kind of 70s scores that weren't as, you know, kind of gone a little mm-hmm. bit out of style, but fits the mold in this movie perfectly. So he was broke so into yeah. it. And it, like the score portion's great. But also he was very, very adamant about like needle drops in this movie mm-hmm. and a lot of them to kind of capture the time and the feeling. But utilizing needle drops that are a little less um obvious ones.
1: Yeah, it's not like yeah, you were not going to get like a Mamas and Papas Needle Drop for it's example. A little different. And
0: I think like yeah. but it's if it is interesting so like I mean the ones to get to me I love the opening one um the Easy yeah. to Be Hard 3 Dog Night that opens the movie. Mm-hmm. The uh title credit sequence set to Santana's Soul Sacrifice, which I really <laughs> think captures kind of Santana's also a Bay Area musician yeah. of the time period. As we mentioned the Vanilla Fudge and then he goes into a lot of cool like Soul stuff, Isaac Hayes, Marvin Gaye, Sly and the Family Stone
3: kind of comes
0: up. Kind of just showing the progression time, but obviously the key one is, the key tune in this entire thing is Donovan's song Hurdy Gurdy Man, which Mm -hmm. um, who knows in 1968
2: Mm -hmm.
0: when Donovan wrote this song. So Pete Donovan. Um, When he wrote it, he was in India with the Beatles, studying transcendental meditation, and it does have that kind of, um, you know, they were all kind of. George Harrison got into that in Beatles songs too, kind of that Indian sound. Yeah, Uh, they were they were really like deeply influenced by that. Um, I don't think, and you know, combined with. Kind of a psychedelic, mm-hmm. you know. It's that combination of um, East Indian traditional, yeah, culture and sound with acid. <laughs> you know, a lot of like it, it is. yeah, <laughs> a yeah, a you know, ton of
1: acid. <laughs> yeah,
0: dr- yeah, drugs and uh, Eastern philosophy. <laughs> yes, and um, but it has a weird mood and tone mm-hmm. that. David Fincher utilizes here to make it feel like one of the more sinister songs ever written. Yeah, it feels yeah, I don't like think like was ever the intention of it, but yeah, it comes the
1: Hurdy Gurdy Man comes up as like an evil, almost Stephen King esque figure.
0: It's very yes, uh, it's yes, very it's overwhelming. Cool. It feels like one of those how they using thrillers a lot, like the nursery rhymes or the slowed down children's songs, like yeah, like Candyman stuff. Yeah. Or like the one Freddy's gonna get you. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. From Nightmare on Elm Street. It's like a nightmare. It's like a um, dream. Yeah. It feels like a dream. It feels like a nightmare. Yeah. (laughs) And you know he opens and closes the movie with it. Which I think is very Mm -hmm. important too because it's like you have to kind of get that like this is the theme song. Yeah. This movie which is a constant feeling of sinister dread. Maybe Mm -hmm. never comes to pass but just dread. So the soundtrack is excellent. Well thought out. Yeah. Not obvious. You know, it's like, you know, it's like you hear like you have to hear Leonard Cohen's hallelujah in like a sad sequence.
1: Uh, Get out of here. Get out of here.
0: Fortunate son, if somebody's going off to war. Uh, Yeah, or uh, on the watchtower
1: from Hendrix. Basically, all the needle drops in Watchmen.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's what I was thinking about, too, is, like, just how obvious those were. And it's, like, a little extra thought, you come up with some rad jams. Or, you become so famous for it, like, whenever Marty puts a Gimme Shelter in any of his movies, just a fist puff. like, I'm watching a Marty movie. (laughs) Yeah! Or you go totally out
1: of the box, like, when uh, Everlong is used in Wolf of Wall Street.
0: (laughs) Yeah, like... (laughs) It's so cool. It's yeah. great. It's, it's just terrific. And again, like we were getting to the, the directors that are in our opinion can kind of have mm-hmm. a cut above. Yeah. These are things that are being thought about nonstop. Right. Like how can we challenge with every single element?
1: Yeah. How can we uh, make
0: this like a higher quality experience? Indeed. Yes. Each experience out. So um Also, we should note, too, I don't know why this was so scary to me, Arthur Lee Allen is ambidextrous. Yeah. I don't know why that's like, that's a scary touch.
1: But, (laughs) uh, telling he's ambidextrous because his teachers were forcing him to write with his right hand when he was left-handed. He's Mm.
0: so, um, freaky.
1: Yeah, well, it's just like the faces he makes, too. He has this great sneer. It's an
0: incredible, and it's used in, um... Arthur Lee Allen, uh, John Carroll Lynch, pardon me, um, you know he's like the sweetheart of Fargo. Yeah, he's the, the
1: goofball <laughs> like, in Fargo.
0: Yeah, he's he stamps. has the... he's got the he got, yeah, he got the mallard he got the five center. <laughs> he, he's very
1: he's very similar to uh, codius in the sense yeah. that he is one of those guys who has a face that can go good and it can go
0: completely evil. Well, I think all, outside of um, that's an interesting thing you bring up. Outside of um, Anthony Edwards, everyone in the cast, yeah, have two sides. Yeah, low But even the, the three leads. Yeah. Going, a big, going different directions.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, because Downey's been,
0: you know, we just saw it in Oppenheimer. He can exactly. be the heavy. Yeah. We were talking about it with our impressions of Jake Gyllenhaal. And even Mark Ruffalo could play a darker guy. Oh, for sure. Certainly has, many times over. Mm-hmm. Um, So anyway, time has passed. And one thing we should know, too, is that the killer has sent as well a letter to the Chronicle pointing out. Paul mm. Avery, specifically naming him, and they get these great mm. buttons. I am not Paul Avery. No bueno. And this has put Paul Avery on. <laughs> Paul Avery's packing heat. He's chain smoking. Yeah. He's drinking and doing coke more than ever. This is putting that, him on it uh, a tad on edge. He is not in the happy zone right now, and he's like really doing a poor job at mm. work at this point because he's so on edge. He's losing it now. The real Paul Avery. Had passed away by the time they made this. He was the one of the one of the leads that had was not available to give yeah. them his side of the story. I get the impression that they kind of push that the Zodiac destroyed his life a little bit more than the Zodiac actually destroyed his life.
1: It's a real uh, easy and straight out of Compton situation where, like, because the guy isn't there to defend himself, they can go a little ramshod with his history compared to the people that are still alive.
0: I'm not sure if they make him look bad. No, they don't make him, but they yeah. make him look like we said at the tagline, another victim of the Zodiac. Which, mm-hmm. if you look at it, actually Paul Avery, who after this went on to work the Patty Hearst kidnapping. Yeah, he's in fine, and he wrote a book about it. I yeah. looked it up. I tried to get it. It's way out of print. It's way expensive. I wanted Paul Avery's book, though. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> what,
3: how is that out of
0: print? I don't know. I don't know how these things happened. There's mm-hmm. so many of these good ones. Like, why is um. The Scorsese Family Cookbook out of print written by Catherine Scorsese. I want that. That's, yeah. I want, I want that, that on my bookshelf. I want, yeah, He's so bigger. I bet if you
1: announced that on fucking film Twitter or whatever, you would sell 10,000 copies. Some some enterprising guy at some cookbook publishing well, one wanted, company.
0: Um, Peter Bogdanovich's book about Dorothy Stratton that he wrote after mm. her murder is out of print. It's like 150 bucks on eBay
2: to get a copy Evil. of it.
0: Yeah. I'm Why do I want it? I don't know. Why do I want it? I don't know. Because I'm interested. I'm interested. But his other books, his other books are out of print, too. And a lot of them are. And you're like, why are Peter Bogdanovich's books out of print?
1: Yeah. There's a, hey, there's a market to be like some enterprising listener
0: looking for all these out of print books, figure out a way to print them. I don't know. I don't know how to do it. So. Yeah. That's going on. Simultaneous to that, the case's notoriety has weighed on Toski, who has to sit through the San Francisco premiere of mm-hmm. 1971's *Dirty Harry*. Yeah, which is the story of a San Francisco detective obsessed with bringing down a crazed serial killer calling themselves Scorpio. You can kind of yeah put that you can kind of put that together.
1: That the blocks. Yep.
0: That they talk with Toski about it, and Toski was also a superstar detective because in in the 67, 68 range. When they mm-hmm. were preparing the film Bullet for release, Steve McQueen visited San Francisco where they shot the film. And to do some of his research, shadowed Dave, the real Dave Tosky.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And a lot of Bullet's style, in particular the way he wears his gun holster, is a direct riff on David Tosky. So he's known as Supercop. He's larger he's literally than life. Been, he's literally been presented as such into mm-hmm. massive hits David, you know, Dirty Harry and Bullet. Yeah. Um interestingly enough, too, I love the sequence where he so he's uncomfortable at the premiere of Dirty Harry, he leaves and goes stand in the lobby. Also that premiere of Dirty Harry is Robert Graysmith, who goes to the lobby and says something very you're gonna solve it. You're gonna solve this case. Oh no. What and you're oh he's like he's the biggest outsider of the group. Mm -hmm. Like the reporter should be the, who is assigned to the Zodiac case should be investigating and yeah. reporting on the Zodiac case. The cop who is assigned to solve the Zodiac murders should be doing the same. The political cartoonist who has nothing to do with any of it. Why is he there? Yeah, he has decided to be there mm-hmm. and decided. Now, meanwhile, he's also um, so he started a personal investigation. Yes, on it. He's also remarried. <laughs> to Chloe Sevigny has shown up out of nowhere in this movie but at first she's like this is kind of a fun date. Yeah, this that is this an guy interesting this. Like, you remember this I got I'm, I'm I in on it. I <laughs> like, I really
1: love her like even keeled performance. It's mm-hmm. so like understated and subdued and like But
0: you're also like Jen was watching it and she was like yeah, I would leave him too.
1: Yeah, uh, totally. Yeah, he's and, gone yeah.
0: nuts. He's gone nuts. He's a
1: lunatic. He's like, yeah, he's
0: getting his kids involved in it. Yeah, it's it's psycho so shit. <laughs> he's investigating all over the place. Yeah. He's trying to figure it out. Um, he's going down all of these roads,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: rabbit
0: holes. He, he he discovers a possible suspect by the name of Rick Marshall. He brings oh, that yeah. evidence to Donald Loge, Narlo mm-hmm. and Narlo, and this gets us. Yeah, I never will forget the way Donald Loge delivers his line. You just named mm-hmm. my favorite suspect. You're like, what? Could <laughs> it be this guy? You know, as your audience, yeah. I don't know if you feel like that, but I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I haven't heard about this guy. Maybe this is this guy. <laughs> let's oh, go God. down. Let's go down this the Marshall Road. This out. Yeah. I like this. Let's take a stroll down, down Marshall Road. Look at the handwriting. Oh, it turns out he worked at a movie theater that played the most dangerous game about Ooh. hunting name, which is a key he's, which has been quoted in the Zodiac letters. Mm-hmm. Frequently. Which leads us to, if the interrogation scene, is not your favorite scene, oh this, in this yeah, movie, then your favorite scene is probably. This is my number two for sure. It's this it is a Hall of Fame scene. Um,
3: yeah.
0: he goes to visit a man by the name of Bob Vaughn, who was a who worked at a movie theater with Rick Marshall, and thinks kind of oh Rick Marshall might be the Zodiac. I'm you know yeah. he's kind of a lead. Bob but, Bond,
1: played by uh, Charles Fleischer, who's the voice of Fleischer,
0: Roger Rabbit. Rabbit. Yeah. If He's not most famous for being Roger Rabbit. He's probably most famous for this one scene.
1: <laughs> it's <laughs> like... so crazy. It is a rule. He's so um, what? One of the, another almost at the same level of John Carroll Lynch's yeah. performance.
0: So he goes in there. He goes to his house on a rainy night. He gets mm-hmm. invited in. It's invited yeah. for tea. It's is very, very like Clarice Starling visiting Bubble, Buffalo Bill at the end. Oh, of man. <laughs> Silence the Lambs. And very, very ominous. Very, very ominous. He goes in. They start talking. And slowly but surely, this character, Vaughn, is like not so much implicating Rick Marshall. Yeah. But kind of implicating himself. Yep. <laughs> and then. He gets to this part where he goes, oh, I keep everything in the basement. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go? And we learned earlier in the movie, most places in Southern California don't have basements.
1: Yeah. Also,
0: Hall reminds us of that. He goes, most houses in Southern California don't have basement. And then they cut to this close-up on Fly Show. He goes, mine does.
3: <laughs> and he goes downstairs. You're like, also, oh, no. you're like, keep him, keep him, just, yeah, keep, keep him mind. down
1: there. There was a revelation before that uh, the big thing where like you get Clued and off I, to I buy all
0: the posters, right? yes, yeah. so scary. So you get that yeah. moment
1: and you're just like, ah,
0: and they've infiltrated our minds with this movie so far. Yeah, we are so invest involved in this <laughs> investigation that and every all- little touch and detail that comes out, you're like, oh, hmm. <sighs> well, and also, this movie has trained us because at this point, we've
1: seen mm-hmm. multiple sequences where when it's long and drawn out like this, the bad thing's going
3: to
0: happen, the bad thing is inevitable. It's also and so we... to be on the lookout for any clues that we heard about earlier in the movie. So, like handwriting stuff is mm-hmm. so on our mind at this yeah. point, and like cipher, like knowing ciphers and boot sizes and all these kind of things are so yeah. on our mind. Like, Ugh. so we're oh. all paranoid, Graysmiths at this point. We're oh. we're him. Yeah, and he goes down there, and it's kind of red herring. It ends. He gets out. He's like, Ugh. oh, oh yeah. And he leaves him down there in the basement. One thing about this sequence to me is that I do think that there is kind of a, we needed a scary sequence yeah, in this movie. In the same vein, there's an earlier sequence in which Ioni Sky in an uncredited cameo gets picked up by a possible Zodiac who oh, threatens yeah. to throw her baby out of the car. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, which was real. But it was like, it's so, it's also weird. Kind of like you kind of feel the need that they couldn't do just pure investigation. Right, they did. their investigation. They had to have some kind of spooky bits.
1: I, I will say, there. I think I love the um, because I think like one thing that that oh, scene brings that pitch. we haven't had. I wanted okay. more.
0: I wanted twenty Ooh. more minutes, more of red herrings and different roads they could have gone down to. Really Interesting. Underline. There's so many options, and all of them are scary.
1: Yeah, and that it's so easy to be the become the victim. Indeed, especially
0: when you have that mindset and you're thinking in that mode. So after this, though, Graysmith is fully, you yeah. know, his entire he's his apartment has turned into Charlie Day's office. And
2: he's brain ruined.
0: He is fully in it. Yeah. His wife has left him. She's taken the kids. Yeah. But he's bringing new stuff to all of the cops we mentioned before. Also, it should be noted by this point, Anthony Edwards, Bill Armstrong has told Mark Ruffalo, I'm out done I'm, piece of, I'm done i don't yeah. can't do this anymore i'm sorry i have a wife and kids i want to see every day yeah and but Mark <laughs> Roth was like why would you ever want to do that <laughs> yeah this is so cool like yeah Look, what are you talking yeah, about we have to get this done time <laughs> continues to pass so by 1978 paul avery has completely burnt out and he's moved on the sacramento b guess who's taken over his desk yeah the wonderfully named duffy jennings played by adam goldberg I love his Jesus little deja vu. vu and he's great and he's yeah. like yeah if he was so great he wouldn't be working for sacramento <laughs> like, i like that <laughs> he's such a I i love his character is such a prickly
1: asshole
0: so, and also at this time period after the transfer they get the feeling that Toski may have written one of the zodiac letters himself so he gets demoted and, he, and what i read he's he almost made chief of he would have been in line for yeah. chief of police if this mm-hmm. hadn't happened. But Toski, they kind of introduce this feeling like the dirty hairy stuff and the bullet stuff and the fact that he's friendly with San Francisco celebrities. Yeah, like, gets in his head a bit. Everything kind of went to yeah. Everything went to his head. So everybody's like life is crumbling. We also learn Graysmith Smith has lost his job. His job now is investigating Zodiac. Oh boy, <laughs> and he just keeps pushing it until he learns that, remember the original murder victim, Darlene Farron, Arthur Lee Allen was her neighbor in 1969. And his birthday matches one that Zodiac gave over the phone to Melvin Belley's maid. Holy shit. It's circumstantial, Yep. but whoa. It fits. The shoe Ray fits. Smith starts bringing it around to Toski. He brings it to Molnax. He brings it to all of them. And they're all like, we can't help you. Mm-hmm. But if yep. you felt like doing something, you." And they give him more stuff. Yeah, they, they kind of like, indulge him. Like, they indulge him because he's close and we want yeah. this too. Yeah, they're indulging themselves. And he brings it all there. But the physical evidence doesn't match it. Fingerprints, handwriting samples are not there. Mm. So they can't bring a case. Cut to nineteen eighty three. An ace hardware store in Vallejo. Man. And Gray Smith mentioned earlier they're like, his wife was like, Why are you doing this? everyone was like, Why are you doing this? He has, I just want to see him. I just want to know. Mm. Nineteen eighty three, we get to maybe my third favorite scene in the movie. Silent scene. Graysmith strolls into an Ace Hardware. Guess who's working behind the counter mixing paint? Arthur Lee Allen. Yep. And they just do. They just stare at each other. Graysmith doesn't say anything and then Graysmith leaves. And you're
2: like... You're
0: <laughs> staring into the void and the void's staring back at you. Indeed. And this is a sequence in which you gotta have to credit Angus Wall, who was David Fincher's editor for multiple pictures. Mm-hmm. Key to the David Fincher style. In this movie... For movies dry, and dialogue heavy as this is, the editing is razor sharp and keeps Snappy. you keeps you moving along with yep. the movie. Again, and also sound designer Ren Kleiss, who's worked on every David Fincher project. Um mm. Again, like we've been saying over oh, and over again, every single aspect of the movie is so finely tuned, so right, so thought about. Yeah. So we cut to eight years later. Graysmith's book Zodiac is out; mm-hmm. it's a bestseller. Mm-hmm. In it, um, Graysmith is not doesn't really beat around the bush, and he does believe Arthur Lee Allen, despite the physical evidence, is the Zodiac. Yeah. We cut to Mike Majot, who's played by Jimmy Simpson. <laughs> Yeah, girl. briefly. Who's who I, who I was like to see. I think he's great.
1: Great um, haunted performance from him. Like his brief time on there. Was,
0: of course, he was the guy who survived the first killing on July fourth of nineteen sixty nine. He apparently, and according to everyone, he lived a very troubled life after this. Yeah, and that is not the trauma he went through. Mm-hmm. Hard. That would be difficult to get over. Yeah, clearly, they track him down. Take forever. It's um. James LeGrow, his character, is the one who is with him at the end there. Mm-hmm. And he hands him a bunch of police mugshots, and he's like, we know you've done this before, but um, do any of these guys, were any of these men, the murderer? Mm-hmm. One of the pictures is of, you know, you see John Carroll Lynch, it's Arthur Lee Allen, and Mike Michaud immediately goes, that's him. That's the man wow. me. Cut to hurdy-gurdy, man. Cut to yeah. the script. <laughs> No resolution. Uh, and the scariest thing of all, as they were coming to Arthur Lee Allen's house, it seems literally he dropped dead of a heart attack. And man, the case to this day remains open. And even a few years ago when they did the Gold State Killer and they the DNA stuff and everything like that, they thought they were there. They're mm-hmm. not. And
2: nope.
0: you're left... Gray Smith went on to become a massive true crime writer. Mm-hmm. David Toski was cleared and retired with honors from the yeah. San Francisco PD. He died a couple years ago. And Paul Avery died in the 90s of emphysema, I believe. Yeah. Um, the, you get a scene of him in, in the bar, in, like, yeah. But in his 60s. But he's, and we're left with this haunted feeling of. <laughs> Jeez, that sucks. Kind of like, yeah, uh, it's very eerie, yeah. and it's like this eerie feeling of like, despite the fact that inevitably, whoever was the Zodiac killer is dead, because mm-hmm. time has just passed, and time has just passed, and we are going to be stuck with this mystery forever. Yeah, no matter how hard they try, no matter how many technological advances there are, we're not going to know.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: For for, but the movie does. Pretty heavily implicate that they think it's Arthur Lee Allen.
1: Yeah, I think they are pretty. They seem pretty set on that, especially the way he's depicted in this film.
0: Indeed, indeed. Um, the lack of conclusion leaves you feeling it's amazing. It's yeah. amazing for a movie. It's haunting. It's haunting. is yeah. all haunting. As Sad. As all get, haunting is all get out and. Mm-hmm you're left with almost like, I watched all the credits and this part of me is like, I'm going to want to restart this movie and go into it
3: again. <laughs> like, yeah,
1: it
0: is like, it's because
1: ho- like hollow is not the right term because this movie isn't anything but, but it's hmm. just the, um, yeah, there is something, yeah, that potato chip uh, it's satisfying, but I want more. I need to I need to come and back if, to this. I need to rewatch. the
0: first movie in Venture's Catalog that doesn't rely on tricks. It doesn't rely on any anti-tie any, any, a stinker. Yeah, there's it's not like a fully bit... mature. Oh, and it's, totally. It's like and that's why I think people hold it to such mm-hmm. a standard. I mean, yeah, it's it's quite extraordinary how this went. So the movie was released. Um. In. The earlier version was ran three hours and eight minutes long. Right. They were trying to get it out in late 2006 for Academy consideration, paramount felt though that it was too long Mm -hmm. um congratulations he is one of the few directors who does have final cut Mm -hmm. so he can he refused to make cuts they started working through it like we said the big one is the four years later a few conversations here there and he said flat out they're going to be on the dvd even to the press when this is coming out (laughs) um they didn't know the marketing in this movie was very difficult Fincher didn't like the posters he mm-hmm. didn't like from the director of seven because he's like they're gonna that's gonna give them the expectations that it's seven yeah he's right he's absolutely right it's a different thing entirely he um, it out. the film was released in theaters March 2nd of um, t- 2007 which is a very interesting time for a movie of quality. Usually these movies do come out in the fall, mm-hmm. um, which kind of goes to show I don't know if they knew what to do with it. Also, weirdly enough, it played the Cannes Film Festival and David Fincher's first in competition appearance in the Cannes Film Festival a few months later after its U.S. release. Mm. Does also doesn't usually happen. Usually, Cannes is a launching point rather than an end point to
1: your theatrical run.
0: kind of gives it like, yeah, it's an interesting thing. It. Uh, film grossed 13.3 million its opening weekend, placing second. Of course, um, what opening, what, what, what did it open up against that March weekend in 2007? Mm. Naturally, wild hogs beat it. No, those dastardly hogs, they've done it again. Um, ended up grossing 33 million in North America, 51 million. <laughs> The rest of the Ugh. world for a current total of eighty-four million on a budget of somewhere between sixty-five to eighty-five million, which puts it at a financial disappointment. Oof! Um, Damn those wild hugs. The um... here's David Fincher on mm-hmm. the low gross at the North American box office. Even gotcha. with the box office being what it is, I still think there's an audience out there for this movie. Everyone has a different idea about marketing, but my philosophy is that if you market a movie to a 16 year old boys and don't deliver Saw or Seven, they're going to both be the most vociferous ones coming out of the screening saying this movie sucks, and you're saying goodbye to an audience that would look that would get it, that would get it because they're going to look at the ads and say I don't want to see some slasher movie.
2: because
0: the movie's for adults.
1: Yeah, this is a definitely like a... This is a mom-and-pop film. This is not a, like... A, this isn't a mil, a, mil, a film where you get your
0: uh, your kicks. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: It's not going to satisfy not, if you want action, not, or if you want not, violence. It's not a
0: titillating movie. No. By any means. And they're doing that on purpose, because this is real.
1: Yes, exactly. They don't want you to be... I think, like... I feel like David Fincher is someone who... Um, he is easily... He is not... Um, He's nonplussed about titillation for these, um, these certain things, like these, like in real life things. I don't think he's like, um, I don't think I, I, that's not the that's maybe if that was like ha- what he would the audience he was looking for in the 90s, that is no longer the ca- case at this yeah. point.
0: Yeah. Um, movie a 90% on Rotten mm-hmm. Tomatoes. Uh, clearly his highest. That we've had thus far. Um, A quiet, dialogue-driven thriller that delivers with scene after scene of gut-wrenching anxiety. David Fincher Mm -hmm. also spends more time illustrating nuances of his characters and recreating the mood of the 70s than he does on gory details of murder. Mm -hmm. Movie was, yeah, like we said, critical smash. Yeah, Uh, Ebert gave it four stars. I mean, everybody went huge. Um, Except for David Thompson... Who interesting um, the guy who writes uh, the um, yeah yeah. who said Zodiac was the worst? He had a terrible disappointment, which in a genius and deserving all-American serial killer, nearly gets lost in the meandering treatment of cops and journalists. That's the case.
1: (laughs) Did he see this as like like journalists are depicted poorly? Was
3: that like as
0: Um, weird? Everyone else though was over the moon for it, but Mm -hmm. despite the fact it did get overwhelmed, just it should have been. In that, I mean, Best Picture, Director, s- Screenplay, probably Supporting Actor for Downey. Like all of those should have been. Oh, on for the sure. Table.
1: A score, David Shire. I think it's like my. It might be my favorite, Fincher score, which is a big thing to say when
0: Social Network and you know. The um, generally speaking, this movie is considered a masterpiece. Yeah. Some almost twenty years later. Uh, Bong Joon-ho has declared it one of the greatest movies ever made Ooh, you can see that Bong Joon-ho feels very Fincherian. They, they are I believe of like mind oh think. for sure like you yeah. watch Parasite it's like oh this has fincher energy yeah they have that cool very slick very yeah. composed style it's Knowing a the world. massive movie that again like Seven also has become shorthand for the hardcore investigation Picture. Yes. Um, if you haven't seen it, clearly, Patrick and I recommend it.
1: It's a good one. It's a banger.
0: The case goes on and on and on. You will be obsessed afterwards. Do you want to hear my favorite Zodiac conspiracy? Yes. Before we go, so the Zodiac killing stopped, or it's almost simultaneous to the beginning of the Unabomber killings and bombings. Ted Kaczynski was a professor in the Bay Area at the exact same time. Oh my god. The Unabomber and the Zodiac Killer are the same. They are both (laughs) Ted Kaczynski. It's it's, it's been debunked, but it's very very curious. I mean, it's fun to put that in your pipe and smoke. It's a a very much yeah. I saw the the Zodiac Unsolved Mysteries episode when I was like seven or eight years old Mm -hmm. and it gave me nightmares for years to come. Yeah. Because I was like oh they're still out there. Oof, and as a little kid I was like that's so scary. that's so scary. It is scary. Anytime like... anytime any there's an unsolved super murderer that's terrifying. That is terrifying. This movie's a so, masterpiece. Check yep, it out. it's a banger. Yep. Enjoy it. It's, my it's only, a wild one.
1: My only critique is that there was a, you know, a certain um seminal 70s act. Yes, I'm talking about Danny Collins. The fact that they couldn't use Hey Baby hey, Doll. Baby. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Would have been
3: horrified to hear that,
0: that factual detail that Mister Fincher missed. Am I right? Yeah. I think next week on the show, we we're continuing in the fact based world by doing 2013's Olympus Has Fallen. That happened. <laughs> it's real. It's real. Um, from Antoine Fuqua, which can be rented and is on disc, not currently mm-hmm. on any of the services to to stream regularly, unfortunately. And then the week after that, 2008's The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Wow. Yeah. I'm like. Really excited to get into this one. I think it's going to be another massive one like this week's ep. Yeah. Um, Where do you get that button? It's on Paramount Plus. Showtime, mm-hmm. much like Zodiac currently is. Although, since I hate to tell you folks, we are recording these episodes in advance in weird yeah. orders. Um, might not be anymore. Brooklyn's finest certainly is not on stars anymore.
1: <laughs> oh man, R.I.P. Oh R. god, R. you yeah. might have to you might have to rent that. I think we, to, we
0: do. Think we do yeah. we're, we're again, we're out of order. Yeah. Um, Benjamin Button's also on Blu-ray and can be rented through the normal services. I don't, I think the Criterion Blu-ray is now out of print, unfortunately. And mm-hmm. the Criterion Blu-ray is absolutely stacked with excellent special features about Incredible. kind of all of the amazing technology that went into the effects mm-hmm. on Benjamin Button. We'll get into all the effects. We'll talk about all of them yeah. in a couple weeks to come. Um, if you've solved the Zodiac case. Oh dude check it please like really? yeah. this is the email we want the most
3: <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> the
1: yeah d- don't go to you know the Sacramento B don't go to the yeah
0: the academy academy wants to break this for the public <laughs> yeah it'd be great for the pad Yup. <laughs> how crass is that we really need it for the pod we're like those podcasters at the beginning of halloween the new david gordon green version God, we're gonna get blasted by michael myers in a gas station bathroom (laughs) and and, and it'll be just it'll be just like it was yeah um check in with us the academy academy podcast at gmail.com or on twitter at the academy let us know if you what what is your favorite at least let us know what is your theory You've watched the, you've probably watched the movie. Yeah. You may have dabbled with Robert Graysmith's book. I forgot to mention I've I read Graysmith's book like 15 years ago too. Wow. <laughs> of course, because it's fascinating yeah. stuff. Um let us know what you think. Mm-hmm. If you got any thoughts on it? Let us know what you think of the movie. Keep up with us. On well, so for that note. Oh, I'm tired. Time for breakfast. For Patrick. Yeah. We'll see you next week on the Academy Academy. Although I'm going to be coming to your house. ML Night to knock on your window. The new fact. Later, Ooh. To, later tonight. I'll,
1: I cannot wait to be breathing into my uh, oxygen tank in anticipation because this go, has ruined
0: me. We're yeah. going to go to the International
1: House of Pancakes to talk it. Over. Oh, love it. Love a pancake.
3: The See you all next of time. Bye. Just then when come singing sa